Hello, everybody. It's Movie Mindset. We're back again. Um, Chesa, we've uh, we've taken a few weeks off, so before we hit the uh, the heavy bag, let's uh, let's let's warm up our movie juices and hit the speed bag for just just you know well just the beginning here. Get get those movie juices flowing. Just by started by saying, Chesa, what movies you've been watching lately? Will I? Well, the last movie I saw in theaters, I saw the premiere of Shin Kamen Rider Ooh, at okay. <laughs> Japan Society, which was really fun. And uh, Hideaki Anno, he's done it again, folks. The first scene, um, Kamen Rider punches maybe 30 guys to death in the face, and there's a lot of blood, um, which I was not expecting. And... It really, the audience was going wild for that because I don't think anyone else in the audience was expecting blood either, but it was a bloodbath and it was truly a, a feast for the eyes. And yeah, this is, this is a Neon Genesis Evangelion guy. Yeah. He, he did Shin Godzilla as well. Yes. You know, he made Shin Godzilla. I think he wrote Shin Ultraman and now he's doing Shin Kamen Rider and he's doing the whole. The did whole. he get his start doing like Ultraman like fan movies? Yeah, he got his start doing like fan animations for like conventions and um then like parlayed that into a, a quite lucrative anime career. But this one's real people even though it's very cartoony special effects and it's very fun. What is like the concept behind uh, a common rider? Common rider is half man he he rides a motorcycle and wears a leather jacket. Motorcycle? No, 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 not quite. He is half man, half grasshopper, the ultimate animal, okay. as they say. <laughs> the, the ultimate two, animal. The two ultimate animals, because you have the aggression of a human and the caution of a grasshopper in one <laughs> unit, and they stress that very often. And he basically has to defeat. It jumps right in. It barely explains it. It's like, hey man, look, I turned you into common rider. There's no time. You gotta beat uh, Spider Man. And it's a guy who's part spider and he has to beat him. And just he beats all these insects, um, insect people. And it's very uh, beautiful. Arachnids. Arachnids. Uh, well, yeah. Arachnids. You know what? Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, it's it's truly a beautiful tale. It's very confusing. A lot of stuff doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's it's a touching story. So I saw that and I saw Bo is Afraid, which what, I... What's this guy so afraid of? What's he so afraid of? He's afraid spoiler of... Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, his mom. <laughs> <laughs> so this is very much like a sort of paging Dr. Freud movie. That's sort of what I've heard about it. I've, I've yeah. not seen Bo is Afraid yet. It's, I think um, my friend David and I were joking about doing a, a triple screening of Mother, exclamation point, um, The Fablemans, and Bo is Afraid called Fuck, Mary Kill, Your Mom. <laughs> and I think it would be fantastic because I love all three of those movies. But um, yeah, I loved Bo is Afraid. I thought it was so fucking funny. I was dying the whole time. All right. Well, uh, I'll, I'll have to check that one out. I mean, I was I was sort of uh, I, I saw the trailer for it. And I was just like, this seems a bit a bit punishing. <laughs> you know, it seems like a bit much. But uh, if you say if you say it's good, I will. I will check out. It's, this. You will lose it laughing. Yeah, it's I, hilarious. Um, what have you I, been watching? Okay, I myself, I, I pulled off this week. I did a little uh, 
Gary Busey, Danny Glover, double feature in terms of oh. I watched Predator 2 and then Lethal Weapon. You know, Predator 2, uh, I think it's sort of uh, people shit on it, but I think it's I think it's underrated. I think it's a very good sequel. I like Predator 2 a lot. I love Predator 2. It's probably the second best movie I can think of that's about a predator, <laughs> honestly. Uh, but, you know, you got Busey, Glover, you got Bill Paxton. Very hot weather movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot, everyone's sweaty <laughs> as hell. You got you got you have a, have a sort of like not too distant future Los Angeles in which the two rival gangs fighting for control of the entire city are Colombian and Jamaican. Yeah, the Jamaican <laughs> gang is handled with no tact whatsoever. It truly is handled Voodoo with magic uh, man <laughs> with Hulk hands. He says, "I need to take your soul." <laughs> Um, no, but like uh, I've said, like I said this before on the show, but like my 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 thesis about Predator One and Predator Two is that both movies are like a, a holistic thesis, like like a sort of uh, a cinematic allegory for like the uh, CIA's dirty wars in Central America in the eighties and its blowback in terms of like the uh, crack epidemic in America in the like in sort of urban inner inner city America because mm-hmm. like Predator Two is mm-hmm. about like after. After, you know, Dutch and crew do their, um, you know, put down a people's, a people's rebellion in uh, unnamed yeah. Central American country, what happens? <laughs> the predators, they come to Los Angeles and, and like, you know, sort of a profit off of the gang wars caused by the drug trade, which, of course, mm-hmm. was inaugurated by, by Carl Weathers in the first Predator film. And if, if, that, if we're going on that thesis, what would the ideal Predator 3 be, do you think? Would it be like... Um the predator transitions. <laughs> they set off a dirty bomb that turns everyone trans in the inner cities. <laughs> um, uh, I think it would probably have to do with uh, like heroin from Afghanistan. Yeah. Yes. The predator has to go back to Afghanistan to save a translator that he failed to kill <laughs> in an earlier movie. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, uh, Lethal Weapon. Fuck. I might probably. I might. I might watch Lethal Weapon too tonight. Lethal Weapon, folks. They don't make them like they used to. What a great movie. Uh, you know, Mel Gibson, I know what I know I know I know what he said. I know I know there's a lot of things he said on on audio that's been recorded. But you know what? I've said a lot of things that have been recorded as well. No, uh a Lethal Weapon, so much fun. So much fun. It's you know, another Shane Black movie about Christmas. And I, I said this yesterday after I uh, finished watching it, but my absolute favorite part of Lethal Weapon is at the very end. Where like after dozens have been killed, like everyone understands that Riggs just has the right to challenge Mr. Joshua to like a wet and wild one v one brawl <laughs> on his front lawn, where it's just Mel Gibson and Gary Busey just just wet as hell, just fight just fighting yeah. each other, and it's just like the cops have him dead to rights, and Danny Glover's like, no, I'm in charge here, just stand back, let him fight, let the kids play, and then finally, in terms of letting the kids play, I did watch the original uh, The Bad News Bears last night. I've never seen that. I've only seen the remake. It's a movie I liked a lot when I was a kid. You know, like probably, probably not as, as as great as when I first saw it. But you know, it's just sort of a, it's a time capsule. It's a time capsule about a better time in America, the seventies, when children were allowed to smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, and say every conceivable slur. Yeah, a great um, time. But it gave me an idea to do like in a for a future movie mindset episode, like just Walter Matthau. Do a, do a Walter Matthau <laughs> episode of Movie Mindset because man. What a golden era when, like, he was the go-to leading man for, like, romance, action, <laughs> drama. Yeah. This is Matthau. Get me Matthau on the phone. Doesn't he play twins on an episode of Columbo? Ooh, fuck. That I don't think someone? I've seen that one. I th- I'm pretty sure he does. I might be thinking of someone else, but I think I'm pretty sure he plays TV cooking show chef twins. <laughs> 
that murder someone with like an elliptical. <laughs> and also speaking of uh, old television, I have been um, ro- watching the Rockford Files. Oh, so good. Just James Garner, just like just being cool. Every episode has a car chase. And then I'm like, hey, there's really young James Woods and even younger James Cromwell. Man so of the sick. hour. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I flex my, my movie muscles. Let's get into the let's get into the heavy lifting for today. Today's episode, we are talking about Burt Lancaster. Emphasis on heavy because he made his made his bones playing a heavy in <laughs> many movies of the 40s. <laughs> Gunfight at the OK Corral, the killers. He has this uh, a mix of sort of an imposing physical presence and sort of a, a tenderness to him. Mm hmm. Um, he's known for his collaborations with directors like uh, John Frankenheimer and Robert Aldrich, as well as his agent and producer, Harold Hecht. He made his debut, like I said, in The Killers, probably best known for From Here to Eternity, Elmer Gantry, Seven Days in Bay, The Swimmer. Uh, so many movies. I, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I chose him for today because I think he really is, like, one of the best actors of his generation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just, like, just such a, a screen presence. And... You know, I realize that like normally on the show when we when we're talking about a like a director or an actor, I don't go heavy on the bio, but I would like to actually talk about the biographies of a lot of the people involved in the two movies we've mentioned today, starting with uh, Burt Lancaster, and like I guess I want to bring this up because personally, hey, he's a New York City guy. He's mm-hmm. a New York City guy, born in 1913 on East 106th Street. He grew up in Harlem. His dad was a mailman, and uh, similar to his Sweet Smell of Success co-star, Tony Curtis, he was running in the streets. He was mm-hmm. sort of a latchkey kid. Uh, he, him in Harlem, Tony Curtis in the Bronx. And also he became a very talented gymnast and basketball player at DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx. However, he got his start performing in the circus. He formed an acrobatic circus act with his lifelong friend Nick Cravat. And he performed as they performed as the duo Lang and Kravit for the K Brothers Circus. Um, his acrobatic career also included posing for sensual nude photographs as a young man. Oh, I've seen him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, with Burt Lancaster uh, for this episode, it really comes back to his body and the way he holds it on screen. And without ever being showy, I really think he works with the strength and assurance of a man on a tightrope. And uh, my favorite quote about Burt Lancaster comes courtesy of co-star Tony Curtis, who said this of him. Here's this great, big, aggressive guy that looks like a ding-dong athlete playing these big, tough guys. And he has the soul of, who are those first philosophers of equality? Socrates, Plato. He was a Greek philosopher with a sense that everybody was equal. He's a big athletic (laughs) ding-dong. And uh, contra Tony Curtis, I don't know if Socrates and Plato really believes in equality, but... (laughs) I'm not sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In addition, uh, he also served during World War II in the USO, where, and I love this, he achieved the rank of entertainment specialist fifth grade. (laughs) Talk about about our woke military. You have to go back to fifth grade. (laughs) (laughs) Technician fifth grade, but but as an entertainment specialist. (laughs) But I, I thought that was funny because, like, you know, our woke military now, you know, no one wants to join the woke military. They're going to lose every war they fight. But I think it's funny that back when we were fighting the Nazis, like, you could get a rank just doing, like, performances. Goofing off. Goofing yeah, off. juggling. Yeah, just, just juggling. If or you can out. juggle fire, that's like, <laughs> we're putting you on the front. <laughs> and in terms of, uh, like, th- this element of his bio, I feel a little sheepish doing this. And listener, I assure you. If he was a like hardcore reactionary, I wouldn't care. He'd still be a great actor. But I just want to run down some of his political bona fides as a Hollywood liberal. 
Um, he was obviously like hugely involved in the civil rights movement. He helped organize the March on Washington and actually even flew back from France where he was filming The Train uh, with John Frankenheimer. Great movie. Uh, a great movie. It was like a lifelong fear of flying, though. And he did like a, like a red eye to go back to Washington, D.C. to be at the March on Washington. He was a vocal opponent for the Vietnam War and even uh, helped pay for the successful defense of a soldier accused of fragging an officer. <laughs> He was on um, uh, Nixon's enemies list. <laughs> um, so sick. He was one of the only um, Hollywood stars who were vocal uh, during the AIDS crisis. He delivered Rock Hudson's last words at the Commitment to Life fundraiser and was the only major male star who attended. Oh. So Burt Lancaster, a real one, a great guy, and a great actor. And to highlight these qualities, uh, we've chosen two films of today that could not be more different from each other. Yes. The first is Alexander McKendrick's Sweet Smell of Success from 1957, which is a claustrophobic and nightmarish odyssey into the inferno of the Manhattan night, an acerbic, brutal, and vicious distillation of the depths of depravity and amor amorality in the modern world. The second is Lucino Visconti's The Leopard from 1963, which is a meditation on time and eternity in the guise of a lush and sweeping historical drama about the fading of an old aristocratic social order amidst the backdrop of the unification of Italy in the 1860s. Uh, for our purposes, I will return to my comment about how he holds his body and acts without speaking, because in this film, his performance was entirely dubbed. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like, there, this is a... It was a, an Italian and American like co-production and there was a version released in English, but the real version of this movie that's like three hours long and wasn't badly cut by the studio is all in Italian and both Burt Lancaster and Elaine Delon's performances were dubbed into Italian. So it's like a, a hybrid performance. But man, oh man, like is, is Lancaster, he is just incredible in both of these movies. He's, and he's a, a raw dog assassin as my friend <laughs> Nate Fisher coined, a term he coined. That I'm still not sure what it means, but it means Burt Lancaster in these movies. There's something sort of like, uh, just sort of um, like a, like a jungle cat about him. And yeah, I always just think about him being an acrobat. And um, I literally in my notes for the leopard, it says like he looks like a cat person. And then I was like, oh, doy, he's the leopard. <laughs> literally, he's the leopard. He is the leopard. Yeah. Uh, but let's begin with Sweet Smell of Success uh, from 1957. Bert Lancaster as J.J. Hunsecker, world-famed columnist whose gossip is gospel to 60 million readers. Tony Curtis as Sidney Falco, the kid who had ideas about taking over. But we happen to know I'm your star pupil because I reflect back to you your own talent. I'd hate to take a bite of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. <laughs> Don't turn your back on him. You might find a knife in it. This is their story, and that of the big shots and big names who worship the sweet smell of success. Along Broadway, throughout Hollywood. Down Wall Street. On Capitol Hill. Sweet smell of success. Introducing Susan Harrison and the Chico Hamilton Quintet. This is based on a short story by Ernest Lehman, uh, was scripted by the uh, sort of left-wing playwright Clifford Oditz, 
and uh, shot by the like the groundbreaking cinematographer James Wong Howe. And yeah. there's just, like, a lot of like really interesting facets about the lives, and, and also an, a swooning jazz score by Elmer Bernstein. And there's just a lot of like interesting like details about the lives of everyone involved in this, uh, beginning with a. Uh, Alexander McKendrick, who is a it was a, a British Scottish director, uh, is like you know, mainly for uh, the Lady in White and uh, the Lady Killers with Alec Guinness, which is one of my favorite movies. Oh, I love that movie. Alexander McKendrick was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, listen to this uh, heartbreaking details from his life. His father was a shipbuilder and civil engineer. When McKendrick was six, his father died of influenza as a result of the influenza pandemic that swept the world just after World War I. His mother, in desperate need of work, decided to become a dress designer. In order to pursue that decision, it was necessary for her to hand her only son over to his grandfather, who took McKendrick back to Scotland in early 1919 when he was six years old. McKendrick never saw or heard from his mother again. It says he has a sad and lonely childhood. And then he got his start uh, directing movies by making uh, British propaganda films for the Ministry of Information in 1942. Mm. So interesting. So like this is a he's like born in America, British director, and then he makes this absolutely nightmarish look at like at America and the media. Yeah. Now, Hesse, I don't know about you, but for a long time in my life, I avoided this movie. Because I was just judging a book by its cover and I was like, oh, sweet smell of success. It, it, it's sweet. This is a nice movie, yeah. right? It's about a guy. Like, oh, it's about a gossip column. I thought it was sort of like a His Gal Friday kind of Smells, thing. Like, is this going to be a scratch and sniff yeah. type? They give you one of those cards. It's just a, a sweet smelling movie that's like nice and sort of goofy. I thought it was like maybe a romantic comedy. But no, do not let the title fool you. Because yeah, it sweet is smell of success, nauseating is a movie that contains true evil. Yeah. This movie is about eternal darkness. Mm -hmm. It is one of the nastiest movies ever made. And uh, to highlight Burt Lancaster, my thesis for this is this movie is that Burt Lancaster's J.J. Hunsucker in this movie is the most evil Ameri villain in American movie history. Yeah, absolutely. He is like, he, they introduce his character like probably 20 or 30 minutes into the movie. And it's like, he's like Hannibal Lecter from the first second he's on screen. Yeah. He is just, every word he says is just dripped in poison and menace. And like the first 25 minutes, it's just this slow buildup to like every single thing revolves around him. And it's like, you're going down a, you're water circling a drain or something. Yeah, and like, the second you see him, it's like, you feel him in the first time you see him, it's in a restaurant. Tony Curtis is like looking for him and you like feel his presence when Tony Curtis goes in there because like all the activity is going on, like kind of around him, not centered around him. But like, I don't know, it feels like there's a, a sacred geometry in the restaurant that like centers on him somehow. Yeah. That's really more less in the blocking, more in like the lighting, which is James Wong Howe like genius Let's talk about James Wong Howe for a second. Yeah. The cinematography in this movie is incredible. And like much of the look of what we think of as film noir comes from uh, James Wong Howe. He was called Low-Key Howe because of his penchant for dramatic lighting and deep shadows. He was also, his earliest discovery was the use of black velvet to make blue eyes show better on orthochromatic film stock, which was used until the 1920s. Despite how groundbreaking he was as a cinematographer, his career obviously suffered a great deal because of racism. Mm. He was Chinese-American, and I found a detail about how when he was working 
on set during World War II, he would rock around the studios with a big button on his lapel that says, I am Chinese. To differentiate himself from being sent to Manzanar with like the Japanese internment. Oh my god! <laughs> That's but like a, like a, a truly a, a visionary like a genius in terms of um, uh, photography and movie cinematography. Also, if you've seen Inherent Vice, he is um, the one lady who's like. Do you like the lighting? Mm-hmm. Jimmy Wong Howe did it for us years ago. That's who she's referring to. <laughs> but this movie. Is like, you know, you mentioned like Hunsucker has this like center of gravity around which like all all the sleaze and evil of New York City just sort of revolves around. And like in this movie, he really is like like a Mephistopheles. Like he, he is like Satan incarnate and Manhattan at night is just the inferno. And he is like, you know, in the frozen lake at the center of it is just J.J. Hunsucker, the most powerful columnist in America based on Walter Winchell. And did you know that actually uh, Walter Winchell, uh, as we'll see in the plot of this movie, Walter Winchell uh, worked with J. Edgar Hoover to get his uh, to commit his daughter to an insane asylum and get her fiance deported from the country. Well, that's sick. That's <laughs> just like, wow, that's just like in that movie, Sweet Smell of Success. <laughs> well, it's all sort of like semi-based on Walter Winchell. But I guess my, uh, my, my big headlines for Sweet Smell of Success are stylized dialogue menace homoerotic sadism yes the homoeroticism is really crazy because like the main character is it's technically not burt lancaster it's like tony curtis's sydney falco yeah sydney falco uh publicist to the not stars um but basically tony curtis is the you know the point of view character that we're with and we get to see him like trying to climb this horrible ladder that the he golden can't help ladder. But, as he yeah, calls JJ Hunsecker. He says he's the golden ladder to where everywhere I want to go. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really like heartbreaking to see this guy who we kind of come to like, even though because it's like Tony Curtis, very charismatic, like very. I always think whenever I hear Tony Curtis's voice, I always think he sounds like a cartoon alley cat for some reason. (laughs) Like, oh, hey, come on. Give me a piece of that fish bone. Come on. Um, And he's just so lovable and likable. And you see like glimpses of like what could be of him like taking a stand and being principled and being like a good person at certain points in the movie. And then, but J.J. Hudsucker is always right there to fucking slam him back down, pull him back down to hell. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we're doing a sweet smell of success because, you know, obviously this is the Burt Lancaster episode, but we can have sort of a mini Tony Curtis episode as well. Yes. Because Tony Curtis deserves his own episode. Uh, and this was like, he was sort of a, a heartthrob mm-hmm. before this movie. This was, I guess, like his first like more serious movie. He'd actually just started another movie with Burt Ranca- Lancaster called Trapeze. Which I've seen on TCM one time. It's not... You know, it's fun. It's well, fine. I mean, it's like sort of based on, <laughs> yeah, based on you know, like uh, Burt Lancaster's own experience, his circus yeah, life, his cer- the life of the circus. Now, as I don't mean to like disagree with you, but what I will say about Tony Curtis in this movie, like the thing to me that makes this such an impressive performance, next to Burt Lancaster, who's like you know stunning, is that as Sidney Falco, you're right. Like there's there's an impish quality to Tony Curtis that like can't, you can't help but melt your heart. But what I really yeah. appreciate about Sidney Falco is that does not give you an inch in terms of like ever letting you like this character. Like they're, yeah. they're like JJ and Sydney are both like they're, they're like in this 
bizarre uh, like tryst between each other for who can be the most evil person on the planet. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's JJ because he has all the power in their relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sydney is his like little Renfield. His idea just, man. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> so uh, the movie begins and we are introduced to the life of sleazy press agent Sidney Falco, played by Tony Curtis. He, uh, he like lives in his office in the Manhattan Theater District. He's got his bed in his office. His door just like has his name taped onto it. Yeah. And he's this like hyper ambitious little striver who works as like, I mean, like press agent. It seems like it's like sort of like, I, I guess they're just called PR people now. Yeah. But like back in the day, like the, this was one rung above being a pimp, basically. Yeah. And in this movie, he like literally d- does become a pimp yeah, at certain yeah. points in it. <laughs> but like this is a truly disreputable profession. I mean, how everyone views Sidney Falco's character in this movie is how everyone should view anyone in the field of PR or communications Today, now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they treat him like dirt, and rightfully so, honestly. And he he gets to his office and immediately starts abusing his poor secretary, <laughs> who it's it's very funny because it looks like an office until he opens the door and <laughs> you do see like bedroom, a queen size yeah. bed in there, <laughs> and he's like. <gasps> All right, time to get started on my day. And then his like secretary is like, "You forgot your coat. Don't forget your coat. You'll catch a cold." And he's like, "Shut up, you dumb bitch. I'm not paying a tip for the coat check." He's like, "What? I've been go handing out tips at coat checks all night. Kill yourself." Like, okay, we get like we get a, a taste of the um, and like really like a lot of the power of this movie is in the screenplay, which is just like a lot of writers regard this movie as like the best movie ever. Like, like for instance, Vince Gilligan who created Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. The second and third episodes of Breaking Bad are called uh, The Cats in the Bag and The Bags in the River, which is a direct mm-hmm. quote from this movie. But like, this movie's use of like very stylized dialogue that just yeah. like, that, that just cuts like a razor. And Biting, it's just, yeah. Yeah. And like, for instance, you mentioned how evil he is to his secretary. He goes, you ought to know me by now, Sally. I'm nice to people when it pays me to be nice. So don't expect me to do it in my own office. <laughs> and it goes, it goes, it makes me feel bad when Mr. Hunsucker hurts you. And then he goes, but JJ, he's the golden ladder to all the places I want to go. And he sort of, ha- he ha- the, the, the dilemma that Sidney faces at the beginning of this movie is that he is like, uh, he has this relationship with JJ. Is Hunsucker. that he's in love with JJ Hunsucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But but JJ has is giving him the cold shoulder. He's freezing giving him, him the out. high hat. As, yeah, uh, giving him the high hat, mm-hmm. the cold shoulder, the high hat, and certainly not the glad hand. Mm-hmm. And basically, all of Sydney's items are being frozen out of JJ's column because, like you know, like he he depends, like you know, like he furnishes him with like you know little little items about like oh like this jazz band that who hired me, and then like to get in to get in JJ's column, it's just like hey, if you're looking to see a good jazz band, check out so and so. But he's being frozen out because. Um, he's been tasked before the movie begun with breaking up the relationship between J.J. Hunsucker's sister and a jazz musician that he doesn't approve of named mm-hmm. Steve Dallas, who's like the whitest jazz man yeah, in, in, I was in, like, in history. In my, I'm like, this is some of the worst casting I've ever seen. This guy <laughs> looks like a total... Um, what's, it, what's his name? Is um, Steve Dallas. The actor, though. The oh, the actor. actor. I don't like know the name. Merle something. Something Merle or something. Mer- <laughs> Merle the jazz man. Yeah, Merle the jazz man. <laughs> but the, the jazz band, this is interesting. I don't know if you know this. The band is the Chico Hamilton Quartet, which you might know from a song called Conquistadors, which is sampled 
famously in the opening theme of the movie Ocean's Eleven. It's the dun 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 dun. That's like this band in this movie. And I remember like the first time I saw this, I was like, whoa, those are the Ocean's Eleven guys. That's so cool. (laughs) So basically, like before the movie even begins, we're like, JJ is completely off screen. But yeah, as you said, Hessa, he really like dominates the action of like the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie. Because like everyone, even without like him being physically present, is sort of dancing to his tune. And we're already like uh, given a sort of a glimpse into this kind of sadomasochistic relationship between Sidney Falco and J.J. Hunsecker. We're like, it's, just, it's, it's one of favors for a favor. But this one involves a personal favor involving J.J.'s sister. And like, this is really what dominates the plot of the movie is J.J.'s obsession with his sister. And for a movie made in 1957, this is why I said like J.J. Hunsecker is the only villain in the American like film canon that I can come close to comparing to how evil he is, is John Huston's Noah Cross in Chinatown. Yeah. And that's no accident because incest is a huge theme of this movie as well. Yeah, this movie is sexually deranged. I would <laughs> I would describe it as it's truly like wild. <laughs> And, you know, like it's it's like in Chinatown, the incest is explicit because that movie was made in the 70s. But in 1957, they do everything but make it explicit that like J.J. has designs on his sister and that any man being with his sister is not good enough for his sister because there's only one man good enough for good enough for Susie. Yeah. Which is J.J. himself. Yeah. And it's it's really incredible. Like towards the end, Tony Curtis touches her. Um, touches the sister to like save her from killing herself basically not to spoil anything but I guess we'll get there and he's just so mad at the I guess he does just the concept of him touching the sister is very it just gets him so mad that he's like ready to kill him this literally like, tries to kill him because yeah. of it and like there's this whole thing where JJ has like absolute contempt for Sydney. Because he's like a he's a grubby, dirty little man who does he's a all, beta. Yeah, like but but he does all of JJ's dirty deeds for him, and he mm-hmm. regards that as amoral. And I'm like the kind of guy who, like, as he said at one point, if 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 a man like Sydney ever approached my sister, I would hit him in the head with a baseball bat. But it's just like the whole movie, he has Sydney doing the most morally repellent things imaginable for him, and judging him as being amoral for doing the things that he's asking him to do. Yeah. And he was like, if you're a better person, you wouldn't be enthralled to me. Yeah, literally. Um, so Sydney, Sydney Falco, Tony Curtis heads out into the Manhattan night. And this is really like the scenes that they filmed in the theater district in New York. These are like all filmed like the, the interiors were shot in L.A. But the like the, the exteriors are, are is all the real Manhattan night of the 1950s. And it is this like bygone era in Manhattan. And just like the Elmer Bernstein score, it is just like jazzy and hellish and uh, McKendrick talked about um, like visiting New York for the first time and trying to get a feel for it uh, to film this movie and he said like walking around Midtown like 42nd Street like the theater district in the middle of the night just the number of people that are on the street and the neurotic energy of crowds was just like very crucial to him and that really comes across in this movie like, like just like and also, this is like another one of these like sort of legendarily like uh, sort of hellish shoots of a movie because they were like the script was 
barely finished and they were revising it and writing it as they were shooting it. And McKendrick said like the worst moment in his life was day one of filming in Times Square, Manhattan with like not even really knowing if the script was done. And like just having to do it on the fly. Deadwood style. Yeah, and, and it, it, it's crazy like how fucking polished this movie feels. Yeah, but it really, it's like tight as a drum. It's, in, it's incredible. And I, I just return again to like, it, this movie's portrayal of Manhattan at night is just so authentic and and stylized, but like it just has that 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 thrum, that that nightmarish, hellish, but also very alive thrum of Manhattan at night, and like sexy and alluring, and it's like it's just fifties like, uh, Akira, like yeah, oh yeah, oh my god, that's exactly what it <laughs> yeah. feels like because it's just like the, the way the way how uh, Wong Hao shoots night is just like it's just eternal darkness, but highlighted by these like bursts of neon. Yeah. And then like all and then just like the 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 skittering of like thousands of people on the streets like ants or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in and into this uh you know Sydney heads into the Manhattan night to like do his do his dirty work mm-hmm. cuz he's got to get back on JJ's good side. And then like we see like what I love about it is like it, we he walks around and it's just everything is about favors and bribes. Everyone, every club he goes into, everyone knows him and hates him. Yeah, everyone has a beef with him. They're like, you know, like he hasn't done something for them. They're still waiting on him to come through on something he said he was going to do. Yeah, he's just got. Every, he's on the hook to everyone, and everyone's on the hook to him. Yeah, back to like when we talked about double indemnity. It's just every everyone and everything in this movie, save for uh, Steve Dallas, the jazz guitarist, and JJ's sister, who have an actual real relationship. Everyone else in this movie is totally mercenary and transactional. Yeah, just husks. Yeah. And it's just, he goes from like one nightclub to another. Uh, In the first one, he's like, uh, one of his contacts is a cigarette girl. I mean, talk about a bygone era. That he manipulates horribly. It's very, (laughs) it's very sad, their relationship. Yeah, it's like she's this sort of like, you know, faded beauty and she she gives him some dirt that he uses later where like she tells him about another columnist who wanted to do wanted to do a, a, a story on cigarettes. You, wanted to do a, wanted to, <laughs> you tried these things, they're great. It's so funny. It's like so evil. Like literally something from like The Simpsons, like he told me he was doing a story on cigarettes. And invites her to his apartment yeah. and like pressures her into sex. And like and like, you know, he he has that little nugget. And Another great, a great line of dialogue from that part is, well, I freaked out. I think at one point I told him to get out of his own house. <laughs> I tried to yeah. kick him out of his own house. And he's talking about JJ and he says like, JJ is my best friend. He keeps calling JJ his best friend. And she says to him, someday I'd like to take a look inside your clever little mind and see just what you really think of him. And then like he meets up with Susie, JJ's sister and, and her, her boyfriend, Steve Dallas, the jazz guitarist. And like just basically tries to because they the sister and boyfriend like correctly know that JJ is against their relationship. Yeah. And the whole time Sydney is just trying to tell him, like, oh, talk this over with your brother. Like he's a real friend. He's my best friend. Like he, you know, he loves just, he, he loves, loves you. Steve. Yeah, he loves Steve, you know? <laughs> and then also, um, Steve Dallas's manager is Sidney Falco's uncle. Yeah. And like Which they, is the first thing um he says to his uncle in the movie is like you lied to me. <laughs> you said they were breaking up. So like, Jay, Sydney knows that like his meal ticket, everything, his future, his present, his past is is depends. It hinges on breaking up this relationship between two people, the only two real people in this movie who genuinely love each other. And, and but the thing is, like, 
is that even true? Because it's just that he wants JJ to be, he wants to be JJ's like boyfriend is basically his like, not boyfriend, but like, you know, the fifties movie screenplay version of a boyfriend. And like, there are other columnists. We see like other networks of like, I mean, JJ is like deeply interconnected with all of them, but there are like, other routes he can take he doesn't have to go this like totally morally reprehensible route but he is weirdly compelled to by well like the the, the power and yeah and, and malevolence of jj it's circling the drain of has, jj ha, yeah has its gravitational pull but i also interpret it as if Sydney fails to do this, then his name will be written out of the book of life of New York City. Yeah. As JJ says to him when he calls him from inside the 21 Club, thinking that like he's already failed him, he says, you're dead, son. Get buried. <laughs> so that like that if he fails to do this thing or like doesn't deliver for JJ, then like all the other columnists in New York won't fucking pick up his phone call or even look at him. Yeah. Because JJ has that kind of power. And people already aren't looking at him. Also, like his clients and stuff. Yeah, when yeah he's because he's seeing like, them. he doesn't do shit for them. Like, yeah. <laughs> like all PR. He's just like, it's just sells people a line of bullshit. And then it's just sort of like, oh, like, yeah. Oh, like, I'm still waiting on doing that. Like, oh, like, uh, oh. they pay him to get mention of their act in the column. And then he's just like, oh, like, I held it. Like, I had the, like, oh, I had, a, I had them hold it over for another week to give you a bigger pop next week. Yeah, they're going to give you... JJ wants to make sure you get the biggest paragraph possible. <laughs> like, yeah, he's like, like, you fucking liar. <laughs> yeah, he is, he's just a liar. He like lies to everyone. So after meeting with uh, Susie and her boyfriend, um, he says to Susie, he says, any message for JJ? And he, she tells him, tell him Steve is the first real man I've ever been in love with. And Tony Curtis's face is like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. <laughs> so then he heads to... Um, the Satan's Palace, which is mm -hmm. the Manhattan, the famous 21 club in Manhattan. And he goes in there and like, like I said, everyone has a beef with him. And then he like, before he even like goes to JJ's table, he calls JJ from in the club. And that's where he get the famous line. No son, you're dead. Get yourself buried. And then like, he comes around and sort of like hovers around the outside of J where JJ is just holding court. Mm -hmm. like like you know the arch archduke of fucking of hell itself and he's sitting there at a table with a senator when he is like tries to introduce himself uh where sydney tries to come over and like just the first scene with jj oh my it's god so sick every word out of his mouth is just so weighted with like menace and poison it really reminds me um it's a totally different performance because he's not likable at all um but it reminds me weirdly of orson wells in um the third man oh his, yeah like, harry lime yeah his just like the way he commands a scene and just is the most charismatic person in the room and harry lime obviously is like the whole point of that is that he's likable and you like him but and jj like, isn't likable no, at all not at all not even a little bit he's scary <laughs> it's like and and a funny thing like uh, despite his incestuous designs on his sister um like he he commands this entire world of like 1957 like manhattan nightlife but doesn't in, seem to enjoy any of the fruits of it like he doesn't really drink he doesn't cat around he has no pleasure in life whatsoever other than the power that he lords over other people. Yeah. Including this senator who, like, I mean, like, there's just like, this amazing, like, back and forth between, like, Sydney 
See, JJ is talking to the senator about Sydney like he's not there. Yeah. And the senator keeps trying to talk to, to, to Sydney like, so what does a press agent do? And then JJ is just like, oh, I'll educate you on that. He's a, like, he's the wor- he's lowest piece of shit he's in a, life. He's, he's a worm. Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> he's a fucking worm. And then he says like, well, you should be more discreet because one of the other things a press agent does is gandle, gather scandal and scurrilous gossip on prominent figures and lay it thin to a gossip columnist who will use it to ruin them. So like they're at the table with this guy and a young woman sitting next to the senator who's being managed by this other guy. And she's just like, oh, I'm studying singing. I'm yeah. going to be a singer. He's like, um, what are you studying? And she's like, singing, of course. He's like, why, of course? <laughs> she's like, what? What? And like at one point, the senator like half stands up to JJ for even like a second. And then he uses that to just absolutely cut him down to size by pointing out that like you shouldn't be seen in public with this woman. Yeah. Because everyone in this room who's hep knows that she's being managed for you by him. Like <laughs> he just points out that this girl is just being pimped out to the senator. Yeah. The senator is and the senator is like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like literally he's horrible to everyone and they thank him for it because he's so powerful and like scary and evil. So Sydney like is is allowed to be is allowed to stand near JJ's table because he has a message from his sister. And like they then like then they head out into the night to begin to conspire how to how to break up this relationship. Like Sydney is able to like squeeze one more chance out of JJ and he says like uh, he says don't be a two-time loser Sydney the penalty could be severe. And this is where he has he goes I love this dirty town as he's seeing some like drunk get like tossed out of a nightclub. Yeah. I love this dirty town. And he has the great line he goes when he's telling him like how to uh, like arrange through like intermediaries like the end of this relationship he says my right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years. Yeah. And we also meet his sort of like, he has his own personal Gestapo of like corrupt cops. Yeah. The, the cop, the, oh God, the cop in this movie is a Kilo. such a demon. Yeah. <laughs> Kilo. Yeah. And then also uh, as they're leaving, he says, where's your coat, Sydney? Saving tips. Yeah. Which He's is just the, always cutting him down. Yeah, which is true also. And did you also notice as earlier, his secretary, all he noticed it. Yeah. But did you notice in that scene? As he like he like the thing is like he knows the name of every hat check girl, every cigarette girl, every bus boy, every waiter, every single person in the Manhattan life, nightlife, and he like he like thanks the coat check girl, and it's just like you know very personable. Like once again, exercising all this power through knowledge. But did you notice that he doesn't tip her? <laughs> I didn't. Like he doesn't that. tip or pay for anything. <laughs> I another thing I noticed is um I know it's of a bygone era, but I'm under the my impression of like how phones work at clubs is like they bring it out to you on a tray or something yeah. like at the 21 club. But Sydney just had one there on the table. Yeah. Like, Cause this is like where he conducts business. It's like the yeah. 21 club is just his office. He gets his own phone. <laughs> so basically like the, the, the plan that they devise is to plant a blind item about Steve Dallas that he's like a, like a commie dope addict. Like he's, he smokes marijuana with, with he smokes jazz cigarettes with reds, but it can't be in JJ's column because if he did it, then Susie would know this, you know, his fingerprints would be all over it. So it's a way about mm-hmm. of like veiling where the shot comes from. And it's like so funny because like there's this whole movie is about the song and dance to break them up without the sister knowing that it's JJ. But we see at the end that like no matter what happens, like she knows that it's him. Like, like in- yeah, she's like like Susie, the sister character is like they, they make reference to like uh, a. <laughs> 
uh, uh, Tony Curtis calls her like, you know, JJ's screwball sister at one point. Like she's, you know, like uh, emotional or hysterical or yeah. you know, had to stay at some sort of relaxation farm. Like the, yeah, you know, a lot of euphemisms for like, I don't know, uh, being abused. And he like, like gaslights the fuck out of her and like, the, like emotionally abuses her. It's like very difficult to watch scenes <laughs> yeah. of, and we, we haven't really mentioned that, um, Burt Lancaster in this movie visually, he's this big, obviously insanely handsome, huge guy wearing these like oh the glasses, smart guy glasses. Okay, another another cool thing about the cinematography in this movie, a pair of glasses has never looked more frightening yeah. than on the face of J.J. Hunsaker. And one of the things how did is that he put Vaseline on the lenses to like of the glasses oh. to like heighten the weight, like the shadow it casts on his face. Cause like he's always wearing the glasses and they sort of, they frame his face and like his brow and they're always casting both a reflection and like a shadow over his eye. And it's like, it's I, I, satanic is the only word that describes JJ Hunsucker in this movie. And also the contra, as you said, like, we talked again about Burt Lancaster's imposing physical presence of what a big guy he is. We could talk about um, the movie The Swimmer, where he yeah. appeared the entire movie. He's just in a pair of swimming shorts. Yeah. So the whole movie is just like, you want to see, this is what peak male performance looks Literally. like. You may not like it, <laughs> but this is what a man looks like. But the physical contrast between him and Tony Curtis, I mean, like, they're both very handsome guys, but like... Tony they, Curtis is like... They're uh, like Asterix and Obelisk. They, at, at one point... um. The the evil cop says, and I f I was like, wow, that's so true. That Tony Curtis has an ice cream face, <laughs> which I'm like, fuck, that's so true. It's it, just this sweet little boy face, even though he's like and what, like JJ 35 says that at one point to the singer, he goes like, oh, Sydney here has got forty faces. He's got a dozen for women alone. <laughs> he's like the one he's wearing right now is my favorite. The little the happy little street urchin or whatever, but none of them are honest. And just the way he's always cutting, just like absolutely cutting down Sydney in front of other people, like his face in front of other people and the way Sydney just eats it up he and loves, loves every second of it. He's like, no, 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 you got to understand. And well, you said they, this plan that they scheme and that's a little, it's more like, that's why he's like, um, you know, my right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years. It's like, I don't want to know how you do it. I don't care. I don't want to be complicit. I don't want to hear about this because I'm above this. Yes. You just have to get this done somehow. And like that becomes crystal clear in like my favorite moment. Uh, we'll get to my favorite moment in this movie that like crystallizes JJ's evil and the evil of like the entire American like post-war project in a way that is just so stunning. But it's this idea of, yeah, I don't want to know what my left hand is doing, but I want it done. Like, yeah. Don't be a two-time loser. The penalty could be severe. And what I love also like um, these little slips of paper that they like transact business with. Yeah. These little slips of paper with like the blind item with like these, these little scraps of poison that Sydney peddles everywhere. Because after seeing JJ at the 21 Club, he heads to Toot Shores Club, another, another famous like New York City nightlife place of the 50s, um, to try to blackmail another big New York City columnist. The cigarette. Who's the, guy, the, cig <laughs> yeah. the cigarette expose. And he's there in the club with his wife and he's trying to pass him this slip of paper while making these veiled threats to like reveal his uh, yeah. marital indiscretions. And then we get one of the only moral stands made in this movie. Yeah, the, the only moral stand 
made by a person like in the media. In the media, yeah. yeah. One of the the urchins of the yeah. One of the you know, like the, the parasites, the worms, the yeah. parasites <laughs> that just like kind of like that's not like uh, well, he's like, a columnist, so he's above. It, um, it's just like uh, like the Midtown Manhattan the theater district as this kind of like beehive and everyone is just insects and the media are just like these like little parasitic wasps that like just consume the corpse the stinking corpse of manhattan yeah and the, you know, these little maggots these little slips of paper that they try to transact their dirty business on and he's trying to plant the blind item and the the, the columnist uh basically admits to in front of his wife admits to fucking around on her it, rather than let his column be used by JJ. Yeah, he's completely hung out to dry. And it's like such an embarrassing scene because the wife is like, get the fuck out of here, go home. Because <laughs> um, the wife is like almost turned on by the husband finally being honest to yeah. her for the first time. Yeah. Like, she was, like, I think she has some line where she was like, that's like the, the only good thing you've done in the last 30 years or yeah. something. So she's like, let's go home. We'll talk about it. Yeah, let's go home. But it's so like at that point, Sydney's like, you think like, oh, Sydney's fucked. Mm-hmm. You know, about to, he's about to be a two-time loser. He's about to get buried. But no, at Two Tourist Club, there's yet another sleazy columnist there who's mm-hmm. way more... Way hornier. <laughs> way hornier. The and other columnist, uh, uh, Otis, I believe his name is, says another great line. He says, like, most of the human race on board, I'd go a mile for a chuckle. And then he notices I'm looking at a woman. And he goes, you go two for a pretty girl, right? And he says, hell, I'd go three. <laughs> yeah. And this is where, like, the movie, like, just opens another gear of evil... Because he sees this columnist and he uses the cigarette girl from earlier. He pimps out the cigarette girl to this columnist by like arranging with her to be like, oh, just come to my office when you get off work. And she's thinking like, oh, I'm going to have like a nice date, a dinner and a date with Sydney. And she shows up at his office and this old man is there. And then he's just like, oh, hey, hey, like you just have a few drinks. I got to go out, you know, business working all the time. And then she's like, Sydney. Like so sorry, like what's going on? And then he like cajoles her into prostituting herself yeah, he, to this she's guy. She's like, I'm out of here. And then he's like, oh, so got a son grabs her school, arm right? and like, drags, and then tells the guy like, look, just give me like five minutes with her. I'll get her back out here. And then like goes in there and has to give her like the worst pep talk in history, where he's like, look, I'm I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to set you up. She this guy can up, help your career. Yeah, she brings up he brings up her, her son. Yeah, you know, he has, yeah, she has a son in military school. And then she's just sort of like shrugs, sighs, and like, you know, agrees to go along with this. And then like he, he calls he calls JJ to let him know that like the fix is in, you know, that, uh, uh, that Otis is going to plant the blind item in tomorrow's column. And he says, you sound happy, Sydney. Why should you be happy when I'm not? And then we get a great shot of JJ is uh, in his um, in his like palatial apartment, which is in the. Uh, I believe it's supposed to be the uh, the Brill building in Times Square. And he goes out on his balcony and looks at all the lights down in Times Square. And once again, he's like, you it's know, it's like, kingdom. It's a kingdom like Mephistopheles. He just looks out on the Manhattan night and he everything he sees, he rules. And yeah, it's like also this dichotomy we see between JJ and the other two columnists yeah. is very like, you know, the the first columnist has a weakness for girls that he like has some agency to do something about even if it's like immoral and bad like he tries to you know coerce these women into having sex with him for you know by pretending he'll put them in a column or something and then this other guy's not more pathetic but like pathetic in a different way and that he's like horny but can't do anything about it and JJ is it's not that he's he's like 
the top of the city, but it's not because he's like more handsome or more like smarter or anything. It's because he doesn't care. Exactly. He doesn't want it at all. He and doesn't like, want also, anything. But also in the world of gossip and sleaze and scandal where like information is currency and everybody is looking to put a knife in someone else's back. JJ, unlike his other columnists who all recognize him as the king and they're all just fighting for like the scraps that he leaves behind. JJ has no vices. Except for except his sister. Except for one. Yes. Except for <laughs> one, one big truly one. horrific vice. <laughs> yes. But like, but nobody really knows about that, even though it animates every single thing he says and does, mm-hmm. is his like this unbridled lust that he has for his sister. And it's like the only person on the planet like that he that he cares about. I mean, he doesn't like cares about, I'm using that in quotation marks. Like, yeah. She is an A object. Property, yeah. She is his property, and in like her sexuality is his. Mm-hmm. And like that, like it's not just because like, oh, her boyfriend's a jazz musician. Like he's not doesn't disapprove because of that. Yeah. Cause like the, the the boyfriend Steve Dallas is just about like the most again, it's a, the one sort of like odd part of this movie is that like the 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 whitest jazz musician on the planet is like, I don't know, like the is a morally upright person. Yeah. He like really is like a corn pone, like Johnny True American. He's like leave it to beaver yeah. ja- playing jazz guitar. <laughs> so uh and the next day, uh, the column is out, and you know, like the the boyfriend has been tagged as a a communist oh, dope smoker, yeah, a communist marijuana smoker, <laughs> a marijuana addict. And uh, there's a cool scene where he goes into uh, like JJ's office and talks to his secretary, and he sees uh, like an advance proof of JJ's column that's going to come out that evening, and he uses it to con a comedian and his manager into hiring him. Yeah, the comedian like some. Uh, I love that because like he knows that he knows that in the the column that's going to be out in the evening that JJ like for no reason just because he actually liked because this guy's performance throws off a paragraph about like you know if you're looking to laugh you couldn't do better than seeing a herb temple at the at the Carlton or whatever yeah so he uses that advanced knowledge to like pitch himself as a press agent to this comedian who normally doesn't hire press agents and he pretends to get on the phone with JJ and place the exact paragraph that he knows has already been written. In the column, and they're like, "Oh wow!" Like uh, when it comes out, they're like, "Hey, wait, this guy's a rainmaker. Like he could, this guy's got the juice. He can make it happen for us." I also like love the the idea of JJ like watching comedy is so <laughs> yeah, or thinking anything or is laughing. funny. Yeah. yeah, it's very odd to me. And I, but I also love um because what happens also after that is that the sister doesn't immediately break up with the guy, and JJ sees that and is like. You're a two-time loser. You failed again. Yeah. And um, Tony Curtis is like because unlike JJ, he has like something he understands that, human relationships. Yeah, he has something that JJ doesn't, in that he like he knows how to use reverse psychology to kind of like yeah. Oh, if anything you do to drive them apart will only drive them closer together. The so, JJ has this blind spot with his sister, I think, and like Tony Curtis sees around it, and 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 like his solution for it that's brilliant is he says. Get him his job back because he's just been fired by like the um, the jazz club that they're, they're like, you know, regular performers at. So he's like, is, if you pick up the phone and call the, the you know, then say like, oh, there's nothing to this. There's nothing to this. He's a good American. He doesn't do drugs or whatever and get him his job back. Then you'll seem like the magnanimous good older brother. And then like she'll have reason to forgive you or trust you. And he does that. And then like he brings this, his, he brings Sydney, his sister and the boyfriend 
to a taping of his like a TV appearance where he's giving his, you know, doling out his, as, as Steve Dallas calls it, like your phony patriotism. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, the best, the best cure for that is democracy. You got it right, folks. D-E-M-O-C-R-A-C-Y. And don't you forget it. <laughs> and then there's another great point where he says like, where Sydney says like, the, the kid has integrity. And it's like, that's what your sister likes in him is that he has integrity. And JJ says, what's this integrity? And, and Sydney says, it's a pocket full of firecrackers waiting for a match. And he says, I never thought I'd strike it, bit, strike it rich like uh, off some kid's integrity. And then this is my favorite line in the movie where he says, um, you're, you're a cookie full of arsenic. Yes. I sure would hate to take a bite out of you. I mean, you want to talk about <laughs> yeah. homoerotic sadism. He goes, I'd hate yeah. to take a bite out of you. <laughs> and then uh, also to, to Steve Dallas, he goes, uh, there's your head. What's your hurry? And they try to have this reconciliation between uh, the boyfriend and like he's like me- supposed to be meeting him for the first time and he's just like oh ha huh, what are your intentions with my sister hope you're not just tomcatting around because mm-hmm. he wouldn't be much of a man if he didn't he wouldn't be much a man like Sydney over here who's not a man he's a worm yeah and he goes he wouldn't be much of a man if he didn't uh, respect my concerns about you know my, uh, by my my sister and then of course Steve is just like why is Sydney here. Yeah. Because he hates Sydney from like every moment because he understands like what he's doing. Yeah, because and he sees he, through it. He lives in the new the New York, the Manhattan nightlife scene. So he knows JJ and he knows the this guy that permeates every single fiber of the city and it embodies everything evil about it, and knows that like how the sister acts when he's brought up and how the sister talks about him and knows that he is not good. And no matter how much he puts on this facade of like, you know, oh, I, you know, let me help you out. Let me get your job back. Oh, I just have some like regular concerns. Like he's not an idiot. He sees through it entirely. Yeah. And like, you know, this play acting of like everyone's nice, everyone's on the same page, like doesn't last that long. And then it doesn't take too long before uh, Steve's integrity shines through and he really stands up to JJ and really puts him down and says like mm-hmm. you, all you care about is your column and like people may think you're some big shot but, like to me and many Americans like me you're a national disgrace like your phony patriotism you're you're like you know, your malevolence like it's just you're no great patriot you're no great writer like you're just you're, you're you're like you're a fraud like all you do is just peddle scandal and ruin people's lives because you can and you're a disgrace to me and like from there he is not happy oh man uh and there's another great line where one of the great only few good lines that steve has about (laughs) where jj has another line about sydney dying or being killed yeah and uh steve says when he dies will he go to dog or cat heaven (laughs) (laughs) so and then he also like uh like the, the boyfriend storms out and then like he's alone with his sister and it's one of the few times he takes his glasses off and touches her and like, there's so many moments where Howe shoots uh, Lancaster from below and creates this like heightened sense of like imp- its imposing presence. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, "Anything that touches you touches me. We're we're drifting apart, you and I, and I don't like it." And as he's like touching her and leering, and it's just like, God, and like she the, looks so scared. It's and just like, yeah, like the oh God, like it's like I said, like they do everything up to the point of just making it explicit yeah, about she's she's reacting like Faye Dunaway when yeah. she sees Noah Cross in Chinatown literally. <laughs> yeah. He's my boyfriend. He's a jazz musician. He's, He's my boyfriend. boyfriend. He's, He's a jazz, jazz musician. <laughs> He's both, you idiot. <laughs> so then uh JJ is in full froth because like no one ever stands up to him. And like but th- at this point like this the boyfriend has walked out on the sister and it seems like they've broken up. 
but that's not enough. Yeah. And Sydney is like, oh, like you've got exactly what you wanted, JJ. Like everything's working out splendidly. This is the most. This is the most evil moment. This is the, in the most movie. evil moment in the entire movie. This is my favorite scene, he goes, probably. I, and he goes like, he's like, well, you know, what, like, what, like, you know, you've won. Like, why go any for? He goes, I want that boy taken apart. No and, one talks to me like that. He's not only insulting me; he's insulting my sixty million readers. And then, like, and Sydney's trying to talk him out of it. Another, another amazing piece of stylized dialogue. He goes, Sydney, this syrup you're giving out, you pour it over waffles, not JJ Hunsecker. <laughs> he goes, the man in jail always is always for freedom. You're in jail, Sydney. You're a prisoner of your own greed, fear, and ambition. And this is this is the line you said it has a. I, I, when I first saw this movie, this line and the way he delivers it just froze me in my chair. When he says, "Don't you see today that that boy wiped his feet on the choice on the predilections of sixty million men and women of the greatest country in the world? If you had any morals yourself, you would understand the immorality of that boy's stand today. It was not me he criticized; it was my readers." It's just the way that like that sums up the way in which like any amorality and evil can be justified by just like he said, like by your right hand, not knowing what your left hand is doing and by sort of projecting this moral stand on this defense of his readers who he has a, this, he has the same feeling towards his readers as he does towards Sydney. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe even more contempt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're like, like sheep. They're his employees almost. You know, like Falco would fuck over anyone if there's an angle in if there's an angle in it for him. But like, it's the way Hunsucker thinks that by ordering someone to do something sleazy and unethical under threat of like career execution, it's not just morally different than doing yourself. It actually makes you the better person. Yeah, and th- it's so interesting because the thing he's ordering, um, the thing he's ordering him to do is like, um, get plant drugs on him and get him arrested. Yeah, by this like By the his, his Gestapo, yeah. And but he doesn't even say it. He just writes it on a piece he of says paper. He has a paper. And he says, yeah. "Call, call, call, Kilo, dude, tonight." Yeah. And no, but like before that, like where Sydney's like, he it seems like he's reached his breaking point, and he's like, he's like, I wouldn't do this if you served me up Cleopatra on a silver platter. I wouldn't like, like there's some things I even I wouldn't do, even if you gave me a column. And then they they, they like they, he just, just looks at him for a second, looks up at him. and he goes. Who do you think is going to write my column when Susie and I are away for three months in Europe? The man in the moon? And he just realized, like, Sydney realizes as he says it that, oh, he does have a price. Yeah. And, like, he will do something that violates even his, like, the threadbare scrap of morality left in him. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. He's like, oh, I'll cash that out in a second. That's like, I think that's like the moment where I'm like, no, you were so close. <laughs> yeah. You were so close. Ice cream face. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, he decides to go along with it. He plant like he goes to the club, and he plants uh, he plants some some jazz cigarettes in his coat pocket, and then calls uh, like Kilo this fat slob cop. And once again, like the way Kilo walks out of the shadows and the way his face is lit, like he just looks like a He's monster. One of the most menacing characters, also because like they have this like repartee, they have this like repartee with each other where. Um, Sydney is very mean to him and all he does is smile and laugh and be yeah. like, hey, I'm starting to think you don't like me very much. Yeah, no, but it's, it's like, once again, it's the sadism of this character yeah. because he's like, he's always suffering Sydney's abuse because he's always like giving it back to him and he's like, JJ says you sweat, fatty. Like, you yeah, know? And, and he's like, my... oh, is that true? Oh, don't break my heart, Sydney. And like, he's but like, he's the one toying with Sydney because like, yeah. Sydney is just like, hates this guy. It's getting more, he, there's nothing it, he can do. It's like more and more like agitated, but like, this cop is just like, as we'll see, is just waiting for the point in which he can just like 
yeah, like play drugs on him, yeah, beat, kill, abuse up. him, like because he knows he, he can has... do it at any point, but like he can't because he's JJ's man. Yeah, he's knows that he has real power, so he doesn't have to like call him like ugly or anything or call him a worm or anything. He just is biding his time like a fucking a cat waiting for a mouse to come yeah. out of a hole or something. Yeah, and like and earlier in the movie when um. Uh, when him and Sydney leave the 21 Club and you see Kilo for the first time, they make mention of like, JJ bailed him out on some police brutality rap. Yeah. Where like, like he went to bat for him off like, you know, probably killing some teenager. He says, I didn't mean to hit him that hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something. So basically, uh, Sydney does it. He gets Steve Dallas arrested. Wait, also, there's um one of my favorite exchanges is between the cop and Sydney where he's like, I could be wrong, but I'm starting to think that you don't like me very much. And yeah. so he's like, yeah, you could be right. <laughs> and then leaves. I love that little exchange. So, like, he ruins this guy's life. But in exchange for it, like, he's on top of the world. And he's with his boys. And, like, he's just, like, a toast to success. And then the comedian, Charlie Temple, shows up. And he's just like, oh, wow, like, I'd, like we'd love to hire you. But he gets one more call from what he thinks is JJ. And he mm -hmm. wants him at the house. So he goes to JJ's house thinking like, oh, there's one last thing I have to do. But in fact, it's Susie that's called him. And she is out on the balcony looking insane. And she's wearing a fur coat and like a nightgown. She's like kind of like a undressed. Negligee, yeah, yeah negligee. Uh, Steve has been arrested. And we realize that like this is her revenge on Falco, knowing full well what he did, is that she's going to kill herself in front of him and spoil his relationship with JJ. Because yeah. like after that point, if you think he was not buried before, it's just like, oh, well, like uh, my, my sister killed myself in front of you. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then, like, as you said, like he like he stops her from like throwing herself off the balcony. And then he gives her this whole rap where he's being really mean to her still. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he's, he's like, your body is better than just landing off, of, being thrown off a balcony. Yeah, it's really insane because she's like, he's still drunk from before and kind of like on top of the world. The reality of the situation that's occurring hasn't really sunk into him. And he's just like, Hey, come on, babe. You got gams for days. You don't want to kill yourself. Goes, come on. You're, you're kidding. And he goes, it's a man's nature to hustle and go out and get the things he wants. And it's like, after he's like stopped her from throwing herself into the, into the fucking sidewalk, he just lets her like close the door to her room. And then he berates her from behind. Like, he doesn't really get like, oh, like this, this girl almost killed herself. And he's just giving her like the same line of bullshit. Well, because he thinks he thinks she's just being hysterical, quote unquote, until he has to like force the door down and then is when he catches her literally an inch away from like going off the edge and that kind of wakes him up and he's like, holy yeah, he shit. Yeah, that body of yours deserves a better fate than tumbling off some terrace. <laughs> yeah. So like he saves her from jumping off the balcony, but JJ comes home and thinks that he's raping her. Yeah. Like he comes in and like he's in her bedroom. She's undressed and he's like touched her. And he's doing nothing. She's doing nothing to disabuse yeah. him of those notions. He's, yeah. And he, this is the, like the moment in the movie where we kind of realize like, oh, JJ is jacked. Yeah. He's a big, <laughs> scary guy. <laughs> yeah. Cause he beats this, like he, he attacks Sydney. Yeah. And, but then like, uh, like he exiles him, like, and then calls Kilo. But he loses his sister in the process. Yeah, the and sister like, puts... The sister is gone for good. I could have sworn that... I've seen this movie once before. It was like five years ago, maybe. I could have sworn the sister kills herself. I don't know like how or like why I thought that. I 
I was like shocked when she didn't. I was like, oh, doesn't she kill herself? But I was kind of glad she didn't. Someone needs to get away from this. Yeah. Like, someone, someone, needs like, to... someone needs to like escape hell. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she does. And of course, like uh, the movie ends with Kilo and his partner beating the shit out of Sydney and just leaving him on the sidewalk. Like, yeah. Garbage. And Burt but, Lancaster just looking out. But just because like as Susie leaves JJ's orbit for good and he's just like looking out on his balcony once again, like. Uh, the the king of hell, but like still in hell. Yeah, like I said, the, uh, Sweet Smell of Success, despite its uh, sweet and romantic sounding title, is a movie about eternal darkness. Yeah, eternal it, darkness. It's evil, and like it, it is real evil, like in a way that Double Indemnity doesn't even come close to. Like Double yeah. Indemnity, like uh, Sweet Smell of Success makes Double Indemnity look nice, look like the Hudsucker proxy. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> its portrayal. Like we talked in Double Indemnity about like this portrayal, uh, even though it was made during World War II, it's this sort of premonition of like the character that America would take on. Whereas like under the guise of peace, we would go about becoming like the fourth Reich, like that we would just take over the world. Yeah. And it's what, it's what Sydney says about like, it's in a man's nature to hustle and go out and get the things he wants. I view Sweet Small Success as a movie about like, JJ is like the, like I said, he's orchestrating all of this and like, and, and through his, the most powerful columnist in the world to like a global readership is essentially just like trading dirt on everyone and like, you know, for the right wing press and like, un, you know, undermining good people for the sake of evil people, but essentially giving American democracy like license and authority to just go out and take anything it wants from the world and yeah. from anyone and to, for anything. That if you can get something, there's like nothing you do in service of that that's it like that's can be considered immoral. Yeah, I think like it's it also reminds me of the third man in like a weird way where the American figure is, you know, in the third man, it's more like Harry Lyme is like so evil is like friendly and charismatic and cool, but. He's doing like the most evil thing imaginable, his, his, which the, is the cuckoo clock monologue. The yeah. clock speech. Right? He's it's like if one of those little dots down there is just stop moving. Like, yeah. Do you care? And he's like literally selling thallium salts to children with cancer and telling them it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, chemotherapy yeah. is what he's doing in that movie. And he's like, I don't fucking care about that, man. Come on. <laughs> We're but he chilling. said like, you know, like uh, the, the, you know, the, the Italy had like centuries of bloodshed and like they gave us Da Vinci, like the Medici is like, whereas like, yeah. uh, Switzerland, it was just nothing but peace and prosperity. And what did they give in the world? The cuckoo clock. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like it's, it's another distillation of American evil, but I just have to go return again to like, JJ Hunsecker and Burt Lancaster's performance in this movie. He's so, it's horrifying. <laughs> it's really like, chilling bone chilling and like i said like the how how absolutely brilliant the screenplay is and just like how every word out of his mouth is like venom it's yeah. just like being bitten by a snake and what stuck with me the first time i saw it is that i'm like this is his best friend and like the first scene he sees him <laughs> yeah. he's like because he kept saying he's his best friend and i'm like i don't think this guy is his best friend i don't think this is his friend at all <laughs> no like there are no there are no friendships. Like there's only negotiated relationships of transactions and power. And Susie and Steve, like they, like he tries to destroy them so much because they represent something that like a power, like the limits of his power, his godlike power as JJ Hunsecker of like of one area of like human life and emotion that can remain untainted by his power, his influence and his like in his lust and, and his evil designs. 
and like that's why they have to be broken up and that's why he tries so hard to destroy steve is someone who has integrity and if you have integrity then like people like jj and the world that they created like they don't have as much power over you yeah so like that's why you got to go and you got to create an entire country of sydney falcos who are just out there grinding and grasping and fucking over everyone and everything to just get that one rung up on that golden ladder of yes, success stepping all over each other's faces yeah. and stomping each other down like cuz there's only room for one at the top and but like i said like just the the manhattan of this movie like we talked before about like uh, Barfly being like an L.A. at night movie and the sort of the dreamy eeriness of L.A. at night. This is a New York City at night movie. And New York City at night is totally different than L.A. at night mm-hmm. because it is hell on earth. And I go back once again to like Midtown Manhattan is just this kind of like ant farm and people as just like these just they're, they're, the bodies, they're just coursing over each other, climbing over each other, working to, to serve the queen or something and they're in the hive. But it's just this this madness and neurotic energy and just sort of, yeah. Once again, nightmarish is how I describe the sweet smell of success. Okay, so that was Alexander McKendrick's Sweet Smell of Success. And we move on now to Lucino Visconti's The Leopard. A stunning visualization. Nostalgia very similar to Gone with the Wind, says Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. One of the great and exciting stories of modern times and of the man who lived like a giant through it, claiming the land and all that it bore, down to the last peasant girl. Prince, my prince. Here is violence. And laughter. Soft, tender kisses. And seething passions. Don't be afraid. I want you, but I won't take you now. Only after we're married. All the powerful, tender, moving moods of the monumental novel come to life on the screen. You make me feel young again, Angelica. Tessa, how would you describe Visconti as a filmmaker? I I would describe Visconti as a very sensual kind of filmmaker who has a predilection with like decay and death that often to the untrained eye could come across as an obsession with like nobility and class and, you know, um, kind of... You know, he's very like Tolstoy-esque in that he creates many movies like this, like The Leopard, like Senso, um, even like Death in Venice, his adaptation, that purport to be about, you know, on a surface level reading are about like uh, nobility or a, you know, could seem nostalgic 
through a certain lens. But when you look yeah. deeper, they're more, much more cynical, much more yeah. like, I think um, Burt Lancaster's character in this is the first ever irony poisoned guy. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> well, we get that. Visconti is a fascinating, a, a fascinating life. And once again, like a, just the ways in which the biographies of a lot of the people involved in making the two movies we talked about today really touch on like the big things of the 20th, 20th century. And for Visconti, it of course was World War II. He's fascinating because he was, he, he is nobility himself. Yeah. He was the son of uh, a Duke like of Milan. And like this movie is very much about the, the fading of an aristocratic social order. Uh, but he was also a member of the Italian Communist Party. He was a member of the resistance. He was nearly executed by the Nazis. He was also uh, openly gay for his entire career. I have a, a, a great quote from it. One of his early lovers was uh, Udo Kier. Did you know that? I did not know okay, that. Yeah. That's so sick. <laughs> what a poll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he got his Good start working with uh, Renoir. And um, that's actually interesting because uh, The Rules of the Game is a movie that's very similar in themes to The Leopard. Yeah. But uh, sorry, he says here, he made no, yeah, he says he made no secret of his homosexuality, and he, but he remained a devout Catholic throughout his life. The quote here is, I am a Catholic. I was born a Catholic. I was baptized a Catholic. I cannot change what I am. I cannot easily become a Protestant. My ideas may be unorthodox, but I am still a Catholic. He also so smoked cool. 120 cigarettes a day. That's that's it. <laughs> the, um, all these like 60s Italian like neorealists. I guess he's not neorealist, but like well, he was like he's, he's credited like, with like uh, being one of the sort of forefathers of neorealism. Yeah, and, like Italian Sica, neorealism. Rosalini, yeah, Rocco and his brothers. Mm -hmm. But this movie, uh, The Leopard, marked a transition in his career to a like very lush, sweeping historical epics that are yeah. like very beautiful and like yeah, his historically grounded. And like, man, this movie lush 70 millimeter it takes place in sicily it's filmed there but if you want to talk about a movie in which every single frame of film looks like a painting yeah then like this is the movie it is so just rich and uh just v vibrant in every second of it mm -hmm. i will say though that this movie the leopard is for like the typical movie head or like likely listener to this show, this will probably be like of the films that we've we've uh, profiled so far in the series, probably the biggest lift because it's, you know, it's it's a foreign movie. It's an Italian. It's three hours long. Uh, the last 45 minutes of the movie are just a grand one, ball with yeah. waltzing. You know, it's like it's one of those movies that like, you know, it's like bereft of, you know, sort of genre or like it's it's a it's a heavier lift. However, I would say part of movie mindset is challenging yourself to see like a, a real work of art like this. But it's also important because if you're a Marty guy, if, if Martin Scorsese is your guy, then you have to watch this movie. Yeah, this is in his top like five. Yeah, I think like you have to watch this movie. And also, if you are a fan of the Godfather films as well, you should be. Absolutely. Uh, basically, Coppola. This everything about the Godfather yeah. movies is indebted to this movie. Like Lifted not just not this. just in the in the parts of the movies that take place in Sicily, but in the entire conception of like the Corleone family, this dying and, and legacy, a, a, a dying this. like a, a patriarch who's trying to like uh, manage the transition of his family, this family of nobles from one social era into another, and. I, I just want to begin here. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to with Scorsese's quote about this movie that I looked up. Time itself is the protagonist of the leopard. The cosmic scale of time, of centuries and epochs, 
on which the prince muses, Sicilian time in which days and nights stretch to infinity, an aristocratic time in which nothing is ever rushed and everything happens just as it should happen and always has happened. The landscapes, the extraordinary settings with their painstakingly selected objects and designs, the costumes, the ceremonies and rituals, it's all at the service of deepening our sense of time and large-scale change. And the entire picture culminates in an hour-long sequence at a ball in which you can feel through the eyes of the prince an entire way of life, one that Visconti himself knew quite well, in the process of fading away. And, like, yeah, like, I I think that really is a good place to start with this movie because it really is about, like, it's a sense of, like, that really puts you into, kind of, like, similar to Barry Lyndon in a lot of ways. It's a movie that really puts you, the viewer, in the the rhythms of a bygone, like the, like the, the rhythm of life in the past was just different than the, than what we expect today. Yeah. And so like, like the, the rituals and like the, the ground things like the, like the religion in this movie and the kind of like the, the rhythms of life, it really has like, it slows everything down and really puts you in to, to, to feel what people in a different era felt or like you can imagine like how it shaped their imagination is because of like the, the signposts of like how you ordered your day and how like time itself feels and progresses. It's like a huge theme of this movie. Yeah. There's like a part where they go on vacation and it's like a five day like journey. It's very stressful. The idea of going on vacation because you have to take like all your wagons and you have to go through <laughs> it's a whole caravan. There's a blockade stuff, that you yeah. have to go through and you have to stop a few times on the way to sleep. So this movie, it uh, opens on a Sicilian villa. And I, I would like to say this um, movie is filmed, largely filmed about 45 minutes away from where my entire extended family on my dad's side lives. In I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was hoping that. I was like, I wonder, I wonder if Hezra has any, I wonder if Hezra recognizes any of, the, any, of the, uh, any of the locations here. But you know, like so far in movie mindset, we've mostly done American movies. We got we did a Japanese movie last a Japanese filmmaker last week. We're gonna be talking about some French filmmaker, a French filmmaker soon, a British filmmaker and not long after that. But we got I got we had to throw in some Italian. We had to oh, throw yeah. in like the the Italian hey. guy. The <laughs> Italian guy, Visconti. But yeah, like uh I've never been to Sicily, but like I, I would really love to go. And just there's something about the Sicilian landscape in this movie. And it is, and it's, 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 it's the Sicilian landscape is mused upon by Burt Lancaster's character, the Prince as being like, there's one point where he says like, he's, he relates a story about talking to Brit- some British officers who remarked about like the contrast between the beauty, the, the harsh and kind of unfinished beauty of the Sicilian landscape and the squalor of the people and poverty around it. Yeah. And he said, like, he's like, they thought that was contradictory, but I know because I'm Sicilian is that you can't have one without the other. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it, it re- still looks like that there today. Also, when it shows like Palermo, it's yeah. like, that's not what Palermo necessarily looks like anymore. But like the town that my family, that my like dad's family lives in is like population 4,000 and still looks exactly like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like, it, it, and it's this sense that like the Sicilian people have been like two thousand years, just been like, conquered and reconquered by various empires. And yeah, just like changed hands. And in fact, like Burt Lancaster's character, uh, the prince, is like they're they're representative of, like the Bourbon dynasty. And the movie takes place in like in the backdrop of as soon as the movie begins, Garibaldi has just landed on Sicily, and the process of uh, Italian unification is going on, like going from being like a collection of monarchies to like a unified national state. Yeah. Part of that is like how the nobility are going to reconcile themselves with like the beginnings of a modern 
Italian state, like a, a constitutional monarchy. And yeah. at one point he says, like, look, at least there, at least it's a monarchy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like we were introduced to um, the first character we're introduced to is God because they're <laughs> we hear them praying from outside the the palace. The family that <laughs> prays together stays together. Yes. And you're right, like. It, we, we like you know we we have these shots of this this beautiful Sicilian villa and then like as it like goes into like one of the drawing rooms like the whole family is being led in in prayer by their like the, you know like every like every noble family has a priest that like lives in them and yeah like, and, and is responsible for sort of uh, the the caretaking of their souls and but like let's be honest like keeping them in the fold of the Catholic Church. Because yeah. keep in mind, like, like I said, like the, one of the first things that happens in this movie is that like they've just been made aware that Garibaldi's forces have just invaded Sicily. Mm-hmm. And Garibaldi was, of course, like a staunch anti-papist. He was like, a, he even joined the Masons, I think, at one point. But <laughs> he was like, you know, a, a existential threat to like the, the power of the Catholic Church. But we see uh, Burt Lancaster is Don Fabrizio Corbera. He is the Prince of Salina and he's a, a Sicilian uh, nobleman who, like, in his family, and they're you know they're praying together, but like you know there's a, there's commotion going on, and you know Garibaldi has invaded Sicily. All the women are hysterical. Like, time to give him some laudanum. We we see like you know he's the he's the patriarch of this like of, of Sicilian nobility, and a- after you know the, the women are calmed down, he heads into Palermo with his priest, and they like they they sort of debate what's going on. They can see fires off in the distance, and he goes to Sicily just to like see his mistress. Basically, yeah, he goes yeah. to Palermo to to bang his hoe, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, the priest uh, the priest is a Jesuit, and he takes time to warn uh, the prince about the dangerous associations of his nephew, played by Alain Delon, who and- is. A nationalist who's like you know he has these kind of romantic ideals, but like he's he's younger, more ambitious. But he under I think at one point they said, uh, in order for everything to stay the same, everything has to change. Yeah, and he sort of sees what's coming with the rise of nationalism, and he's like, in order to maintain our aristocratic prestige, pr- uh, aristocratic privilege and property, we need to like fight on the side of the nationalists and like make a deal with them. Basically, yeah. I I was reading an interview with um, Visconti where he was like. You have to ask yourself, like, if this movie took place in the 20th century, would Tancredi have been a fascist? Would he have aligned with well, like, Mussolini? I mean, honestly, I think like the, the movie, I think, is very pointed in that like it's, it's, it takes place about 100 years before the total collapse of national democracy in Italy. But I think like in Tancredi, the Alain Delon character, I think we see the prince played by Burt Lancaster is aristocratic and sort of removed, but he's humane. And Elaine Delon's character is more modern, but there's something ruthless and kind of almost mafioso about him. That like, it's sort of like the social order that he and Claudia Cardinal will inaugurate is, I think, like in Visconti's view, is, I think, directly connected to fascism. And there's, um, I think, Delon's entire worldview can be kind of summed up by something he says at the end in the final ball scene to his um, cousin, um, Conchetta, who... He was um, going to marry at one point. Yeah, who had designs for him. And um, we'll get to that. There's something funny with that. But um, he, because Delon fights with Garibaldi. That's yeah. what um, the priest is warning him about. Um, he fights with Garibaldi. And then Garibaldi, we hear of his execution in the last scene. And um, Not his Delon, execution. He, he died much. He was injured in battle. Uh, this is like in Sicily. He was injured. I think he, he dies later in life. Like he, they put all of his soldiers to death. Yeah. Is what. Um, and Delon comes in from talking to this like 
oafish like kind of colonel about this the royalist army yeah. yeah um and he's like you know the colonel's right you got to have law and order and um conchetta is like you fought alongside those people you wouldn't have said this like the old you wouldn't have said this and he's like what are you talking about yeah i would have i've always said stuff like this <laughs> yeah and he's like with him it's just whatever advances him there's no like very, totally fluid morals that well, he, he has. switches sides yeah. like, a number of times in, in this. But uh, why don't we just talk about uh, Elaine Delon in this okay, movie? You, this, you said Elaine Delon in this movie like uh, kindled some sort of sexual awakening in you. Yeah, this is like I was watching the first time I saw this movie. I was like eleven, and I was like, "Oh, I'm gay." <laughs> like, I was like, "This is the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my entire life." And Elaine Delon in this movie is like, I truly think like. No one, male or female, has ever looked better in any movie ever. He's so gorgeous and like... Except for maybe Alain Delon in Le Samurai yeah. or Le Circle Rouge, which we'll be <laughs> yeah. talking about in a few weeks. Or Purple Noon yeah. or Rocco and His Brothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I remember like a while ago on Twitter, like uh, I saw someone said that like, uh, they were like, oh, like guys always say Alain Delon is the most handsome man ever. And like, I like I just don't get it. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Are you blind? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what do you talk? Um, but yeah, like. Uh, you just, and like, t- talk about a, a contrast to um, Burt Lancaster in as a person, because he's one of the most evil. appalling, one horrible of the, people. And like, there's there's a real evil, like in, in his attractiveness. Like, I yes. think that's part of what makes him so stunning and like sexy is that there is a real kind of like, I don't know, cruelty behind yeah. his eyes. There's a coldness to him. Yeah, like, he's like a snake-like kind of. Do you know the whole like uh, sex scandal that he was involved in where like his bodyguard was like killed and like found in an alley and it was connected oh to all God. these like gay orgies that were going on in France. <laughs> like, there was, Holy shit. I didn't I was not aware of that. Uh Delon's friend and bodyguard was found murdered in a rubbish dump near Paris. The police investigation revealed claims of sex parties involving celebrities such as Delon and members of the French government, including future president Georges Pompidou, whose wife, Claude Pompidou, was allegedly the subject of a series of compromising photos at one such party. Corsican crime boss Francois Marcantoni, a friend of Delon, was suspected of involvement in the murder. The affair gained notoriety throughout France, and in a 1969 BBC interview, Delon was questioned about his alleged involvement in the death of his friend, rumors of involvement in sex parties, and his own sexual preferences. Uh... He's it's like, people once more don't say it straight to your face, but a reporter asked him this, but they suggest very strongly that you have homosexual tastes. And Delon's response with, so what's wrong if I had? Or did I did? Would I be guilty of something? If I like it, I'll do it. We have a great there. actor in France <laughs> named Michael Simon. And Michael Simon once said, Michelle, Michelle Simon once said, if you like your goat, make love with your goat. But the only matter is to love. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like fuck you so want true, love King. but so love true. is a different matter <laughs> <laughs> love is love goat <laughs> but yeah Elan Delon um, a guy who is um, the power of his real life evil is communicated in the way that Burt Lancaster's power of, of real life good of being a real life angel does come across yeah so uh, like they, they return from Palermo his little like uh, liaison with his mistress and it's the next day and they're at the villa and the priest tries to get him to confess and he says, like, you know, you'll, you have a, a sin of the flesh to, to confess to. And he goes, I won't be doing that today. And I love the way he justifies himself to the priest where he says, 
I'm a vigorous man. He goes, I can't enjoy myself with a woman who crosses herself in bed. I've had seven kids with her and I've never seen her navel once. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, you know what? She should confess. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and the priest is like scandalized by it, but he's like, oh, that prince. And then they have a, com- a very interesting conversation that really is like sums up like what the movie is really about because the priest is uh, like aware of obviously his nephew's uh, national sympathies but also that like the prince himself may be wavering and he says like look like you you'll make a deal like even if it hurts the church and like what he what he says here is like he sort of muses philosophically about like what like, this isn't really a war like they it's just the middle class doesn't want to destroy us they only want to take our place and very gently at that yeah so it's just like he just views it as like and what he says to him is uh, like you know, for, for an aristocrat like myself, like anything that will keep things basically the same for even another hundred years is everything to us. Yeah. And so like there's any, any promise that we can continue this ancient way of life just a little bit longer, we'll trade away. Well, yeah, like we'll, we'll trade away the church for our benefit. And if it was you like facing a similar choice, you would trade away the nobility and you would sacrifice them to the middle class. And well, you should. Yeah. And rightly so. He's like, Yeah. And then the priest says, you have two sins to confess now. <laughs> One is a sin of the flesh, the other a sin of the soul. And he says, like, you know, how, how can, like, uh, if a man is blind, you can help him. But if his soul is blind, what can you do? And there's a very poignant line where uh, Lancaster, the prince, says, are our souls blind or are we just affected by history like everything else? And yeah. that's really, like, the, the theme of this movie is this, like, what's so impressive about this movie is that it's, like, I guess like a sweeping historical drama is how you might describe it, but there's almost no drama in this movie. Certainly no melodrama. Things just happen. And like a history, the forces of history and like the fading of one social order and its replacement by another, it happens to everyone at the same time and people, are our souls blinded to it or or do we become blind to the world we live in or do we just live in this world where things happen to us and we just get by as best we can? Yeah, and that's what, when I say like, Burt Lancaster plays like the irony poisoned prince. I, I'm joking, but like what really his stance is very like a weird Zen, like the stranger almost kind of, you know, I see the whole totality of everything going on. I don't really have much like Delon. He doesn't have um, allegiances per se, but unlike Delon, he's wise enough to know that and to know like all he's in it for is like self-preservation and preservation of his old order preservation of the of the the rhythms and rituals of this ancient way of life yeah and really like the transformation that happens in this movie the personal on a personal level is not necessary it's like the transformation of sicily and of italy as a whole and like the world but the personal transformation is him kind of judging these world systems and world orders and seeing their flaws, their benefits. Like by the end, he's completely disillusioned with, um, you know, the world that he's like throughout the course of the movie, he makes peace with yeah, and resigns himself to and sort of charts a course for his family into the future through his nephew. And then in like the last hour of the movie, as Scorsese talks about, we'll get to it, this ball scene we see it like all drain away from him. Yeah. It really, it's, it's harrowing. It's really heartbreaking. It's harrowing. Like, yeah. Um, can we talk about the, uh, the battle scene in this movie? Yeah. The battle scene, which wasn't in the book and Visconti added it like 
they just got to see them fighting. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I love it because like I, I described this in my notes as a very Italian battle scene because it's like both sides fighting seem to be like very half-heartedly killing each other. Yeah. And they're just scary. sort of like running around and then like they're like, okay, can we take a break now? Yeah. <laughs> an hour, I got to have lunch. Like, There's a point where I was like, what? what team are these guys on? <laughs> yeah, like, just, like, it seems like it's just people kind of like, it, it's all very loud, but it's just like two different sides, one in red and the other in blue, but they're just kind of like milling around. <laughs> yeah. And my, my favorite part is there's um this guy in a top hat who is basically like commanding these like um loyalist, like soldiers. Um, I, oh, he's I, like like the, the, those are like the local compradors. Yeah. yeah and like, yeah. there's a scene where like, where like the Royalist forces are retreating. And then, like, the local compradors just on their way out just execute, like, four guys in front of their wives and children. Yeah. They just shoot them. They're like, they're like, well, like, like we're losing, but, like, we're not going to live. We're not going to leave without taking care of this business. Yeah. And they just execute these guys and don't get far between, like, these, like, Italian grandmas and mothers just get their revenge on them and they just string them up. Yeah. It's like there's no, no one's in charge here. Like, they, like. Well, they, because they execute these guys under color of law and then the mob just takes them and hangs them. Well, yeah, it's like, well, the thing is, like, the people who do the shooting kind of run away. But there's like a guy dressed as the penguin. Who's the guy like, who ordered them to pull the trigger <laughs> is just standing there being like, well, what's going on? Wait, where'd you go? He's like, like, he's like running up to these other soldiers who are like kind of retreating, kind of fighting. And he's like, help me. And they're just like ignoring him and ignoring <laughs> yeah. the um the peasants who were like grabbing him to string him up and they're very half-heartedly hanging him. <laughs> yeah, you know, every, all the all the killings in this scene are like first of all like there's scenes where like like a line of cavalry like runs up to like, you know, uh like a formation of men and their their muskets and like they all fire but like one guy dies. <laughs> like nobody yeah. can hit anything. <laughs> nobody can hit the side of a building with a fucking gun in this movie. Yeah. It just it's, and Elaine Delon is like leading this like leading the men like he's he's fighting for the the tricolor, the mm-hmm. current Italian flag, you know, he's fighting on the side of the nationalist. He's like ha- it sustains like the weakest injury I've ever seen in a war movie. He like gets dust in his eye. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's like, "Oh, oh wait, okay. God, just keep blinking keep blinking and then like in the next scene he has some like half eye patch that's really just like a, a bandana that he's half keeping over his eye it's so hot it did <laughs> yeah, it rewired yeah. my brain chemistry honestly <laughs> seeing him with like a piece of silk like wrapped across his eye just grinning into the camera like a like a the devil and just being like yeah oh, he called you your majesty he's breaking <laughs> the rules of garibaldi yeah. isn't that cool well so like uh the the, the nationalists win they take palermo and then um the prince and his family, uh, they, they retreat as they do every summer to their um, like sort of more uh, rural palazzo. And like, you know, it's like a, like a five day trip into 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 the into the, the less developed part of Sicily than what we've seen in this movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, they, they go on holiday. They get the, the whole the, the, their whole caravan gets stopped at a checkpoint by Garibaldi's forces and they're like we've rescinded all they're like they have the papers to travel but they're like all civilian travel permits have been uh, rescinded and then Elaine Delon just runs up to them and he's like let us out of the way you fucking peasants like, like I fought with you in Palermo he's like I'm Prince Captain Tancredi yeah. Falconieri and he and just big dicks them and they let them through and I thought yeah. it was this kind of like sort of sardonic note that like the revolution is like already making exceptions for the nobility yeah. like and that like and it just shows like Alain Delon's like his 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 uh, sympathy ideologically with their cause or whatever goes as far as like can I go on vacation with my family yeah and yeah, then it yeah. just immediately um we get uh like a little bit of um Alain Delon and Conchetta his his cousin who like you think they're gonna get together and he like there's that scene where like he uh he dabs her forehead with water 
from his like handkerchief and she's like, oh, it feels so good. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, like, I mean, imagine what, because like, they're in full dress. Like, imagine what women and men had to dress like back then. No air conditioning. Yeah. No fans. And you feel it's, it in it's this Sicily movie. Sicily in the summer. You feel it in this movie. The, um, one of my favorite, um, my favorite shot in the entire movie is later on when they get to this like summer town, they're greeted by everyone in town, basically who comes out. And then there's a mass service basically held, um, not for them, but like kind of for them where they, um, are sitting in at the back wall of this church. And there's this like unbelievable tracking shot of the whole family exhausted from traveling. They're covered in dust. Covered in dust. None of them move even an inch. None of them even blink. And this like hymn is playing and it's like a slow tracking shot of the whole family. And they look like statues in this church. They look like they are just passive like fixtures in this like church that was destroyed by an earthquake pretty soon after this movie filmed. And it, which... If that's not poetic, then, you know, I, I mean, don't know like, what yeah, is. The fact that the earthquakes just swallow up the church itself. And yeah. Like, I, 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 I described Sicily and the Sicilian landscape in this movie, which is, again, I have to underscore how utterly breathtaking it is to take this all in on 70 millimeter. And like to, to see like the human beings in this landscape is just so profound about There's something so profound about it. And like Sicily, it's like it's so it's so rocky and like mm-hmm. and and and. I described it as unfinished and I just kept thinking of that line uh, from Werner Herzog where he talks about the jungle where it's like the beauty of the jungle. It's like it's a place that God, if he exists, he made it in anger and he didn't finish it. <laughs> and like I, I just get like get that feeling from this is like the the harsh but like breathtakingly beautiful Sicilian landscape in this movie, which is really like the uh, kind of like the narrator of this movie. It's the ultimate arbiter of everything because it's it's still there and the people that traverse it. And the the social orders and empires that they serve or are ground into dust under an earthquake just swallows all that shit too. Yeah. There's um in like the town my family's from, like a little bit outside of it, there is this like weird thing that's from like, I don't know, like three hundred AD, like three hundred BC or something. Like it's like so old. And it's just like a man, a big man made out of giant boulders. That's just like laying in the ground. And my grandpa has so many, had like so many pictures of it on his walls. Like that's back. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> just this weird statue man made by like, I don't, who knows? It's like almost like, like Neolithic. Like, and yeah, like Sicily has always been like one of the poorest parts of Europe. And then like, it's just been like, just changed hands like so many times. Like the, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the you know, the, the, the fucking, just has been invaded and conquered so many different times. But the interesting thing, like you mentioned, like the religious service and the priest being a big character in this movie, the way like the Catholic church is like the only constant yeah. in the lives of like any, like it's the only thing that like grounds them, grounds like the Sicilian people. Like they have this like, and there's a part later in the movie where Burt Lancaster talks about like the Sicilian people don't want progress or modernity because they're proud and they think they're perfect the way they are and yeah they, their vanity is stronger than their misery yeah and that like yeah like the, the church and that like both the beauty of the buildings as like in contrast to like the harshness of the environment but also like i said the rituals and rhythms that order a sense of time and without that what would time even be like it's what the scorsese thing about how like days and nights just stretch into infinity mm-hmm. and without these like festivals masses and like the your 
like clockwork, like summer trip trip where you move your whole family to your other palace that you live in. And there's an interesting scene where they're on the road where the, uh, the priest has a conversation with like some of the, like the locals. And he like, they ask him like, what, what are the, what are, what are nobles like? And he's like, well, like, you know, they're different than you and I, but like also kind of the same. And he has this whole thing where he talks about like the difference between the nobility and normal people is that like, they don't think even for a second about like life and death issues that like normal people like that govern their lives. Yeah. But like, you don't think for a second about the life and death things that they consider that order their lives. Like, am I able to take my family on our summer vacation? Can we go on our vacation? Can we go on our summer trip? And like, you know, like they're, they're willing to like the, a war is going on and like they've made their peace of that. But if like, as we see with Delane Delane getting through the, uh, the checkpoint, they're like, the war is fine. And like, we'll take win, lose or draw. Like we'll say the same. However, if the war affects our ability to take our summer retreat, then that's really life and death for yeah, us. Yeah. It's like high rise yeah. as long as everyone's TVs are on. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so they're in their summer home and, and then the, the priest, um, there's a funny scene where he walks in on, uh, he has, has some important information for the prince and the prince is in the bath. He steps out of the bath naked in front of the priest and he's trying to like hide his eyes and he's like, you're used to naked souls which are a million times dirtier than naked bodies. Yeah. And, and, and then he tells him to take a bath himself. He's yeah. like, you stink. <laughs> and um, this is one of my favorite little um, like moments in the entire movie is um, the priest being like, your daughter has come to me and told me that, um, you know, she's, a, she's in love. And uh, he's like, that's ridiculous. And the the priest is like, don't you want to know who? And he's like, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> no, and, and another really profound line where he says like, a man's youth lasts as long until like one of his children falls in love and then you're basically dead. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, don't tell me about this. Like to hear that my daughter is in love is like, I can pretend that I'm young or that I can like still feel vital or like a man until I'm ultimately replaced by like, you know, your, your child has become adult enough to start their own family. And also it it's also like, she, he's like, don't you want to know who? And he's like, who the fuck else could it be? But the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah, sexy yeah. ass, the, like the dashing young officer <laughs> yeah. that's hanging around all the time. Because <laughs> he like without even being told, he's like, has Tancredi made any offers to her yet? And the priest is just like, no. <laughs> and then like he, he like he doesn't approve of the match, not because he like Tancredi, like his nephew, he very much supports. But he's saying that like Tancredi, he's a guy on the make. Like yeah. he's going to be an ambassador to like St. Petersburg or, or Paris or something like that. And I know who, I know who my daughter is. And she's just like, she likes kinda, to hang out at the She's kind of mousy and shy and she doesn't have like the, the, the sharpness or kind of um, ruthlessness of like uh, someone who will be like a good partner for will help him as he, you know, is makes his come up in, in society. Yeah. And like to go forward again to the ballroom scene, there's a moment where um, Conchetta is talking to Angelica, the, character will be introduced later played by claudia cardinale and she's like i hate balls like this i wish it would i wish they would all be over and i could just go home and chill at home and claudia cardinale is like i wish it would never end i wish it would i wish this would never end i already got a dress for the next one (laughs) yeah well okay there were like so uh the, the prince burt lancaster is sort of like he's he's a little bit mournful about his daughter but like he he realizes that this is not a good match uh, which is quickly solved because they host dinner at their first night there and they have to bring by sort of the local Don who represents the middle classes, like the yeah. rising power of the middle classes. Because it's like, it's an old story. Like 
he's not his family you know like, there's a great there's a really funny scene where one of his friends talks about like this guy's wife and they're like oh like she's from cow shit like she's yeah. just like some insane peasant the first thing they say about the guy when he shows up is um well they see him in the town um before that and they you know he's really excited to see them but he shows up to this dinner in like like a dying tux and tails a tux yeah. and tails and they say like look at him in that look at his shoes yeah, look, yeah exactly <laughs> they're, they're the just shitting all like, over him yeah but like the thing is like th this is like the the social evolution that Visconti is portraying here because like here, here's this guy who's like he's not nobility and like probably 200 years ago they would have like run their horses over him and like raped his daughter for fun or whatever yeah but now the thing is he has more money than any, he has more money than even they do yeah and like he stands to be like when the church gets all of their property <laughs> repossessed and divided up. He stands to be like the biggest landowner in the area. Yeah. So like they have to, they, they have to invite him to dinner. He has to be a part of their world, even though his bloodlines are like, you know, from the fucking the, the gutter. Yeah. And like they can trace theirs back to like, you know, the, I don't know, like the, the Spanish conquest of Sicily. There's a hilarious scene later after he um, is basically asked the guy if his daughter will marry Tancredi. And um, the guy is like, also I, um, you know, I've it's in the mail, but I have something that proves that I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, he's gonna from buy, like, like uh, buying some yeah, sort of title, yeah, yeah, yeah. where they're like, yeah, I'm just waiting for the letter. Where they like, there's somebody says, like, oh, we can trace like some great aunt's family back to like, I don't know, like, uh, the, do you want to hear something funny? My grandparents have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what, what's what's the pedigree here? What are we talking about? It's, it's um, the, my last name, Denny, it comes from a French nobility, actually. I can't remember exactly where, but I. One time I looked up Denny last name meeting and meaning and it was like Denny, uh, the Sicilian last name means born of two races. And I was like, <laughs> was it Dennis Hopper from True Romance? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, damn. <laughs> uh, the, the, I'm like, you know what? Of those two, it's probably the French one. Honestly, the, the I'm white as hell. <laughs> the, the illustrious and noble penis family. Of, yeah, from the France. penis family. <laughs> um, but the um, this is kind of what I mean by like. Um, Burt Lancaster being like detached from everything is he, you know, makes fun of this guy, but he seems at the beginning, like almost completely way more indifferent and way more accepting of this change in yeah. the guard than anyone around him. Like his family is freaking out. The, the, the priest is terrified by it, obviously, because of his, you know, associations with the Catholic Church and what this means for their power. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, like the, the pr prince, um, the princess Selena Bert Lancaster, yeah, like he is very much from the from the get go resolved to like accept whatever change or like accept as much as he has to. Yeah, and so like uh, he's a little bit disturbed about like what am I going to do about my daughter and my nephew? This is very much an uncle and nephew movie, by the yeah, way. It's it's totally funny, yeah, uncle and nephew, uncle nephew magic, uncle nephew magic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So they're like they're sort of bit, like he's a bit concerned. He's just like like look, I don't want to. I don't want to undermine my daughter, but like he chooses his nephew over his daughter. And they're like, how are we going to solve this problem? Well, problem solves itself when the like middle class grasper, his daughter is invited to the dinner and she shows up and she is absolute knockout. Claudia every, Cardinal. Every single person in the room like turns and just stops what they're doing. And Claudia Cardinal is like gorgeous, like oh, totally earns God. it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Kessa, the, the stuff she does with her lips in this movie, <laughs> like the way like she bites and purses her lips in this movie, and it's just like being shot with a rifle. Like, yeah. And it's just like, and, and like, you know, obviously Neff is completely enamored with her. And at dinner, 
regales her with a charming war story. We saw we saw little this little was, this, this, this is so, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like he regales the table with a charming war story about the Battle of Palermo, where they were like uh, they had to like storm a convent full of nuns, and he said that they were. They were quivering and whining like dogs, thinking they were about to be raped to death by these like <laughs> nationalist soldiers. And he's like, they were ugly as hell. And he said, they were all old as shit. And he said, he said like, uh, honey, uh, we'll come back later when you have some novices. We'll come back and <laughs> yeah. we'll come back and rape you then. And then and like everyone, like and Claudia Cardinal laughs way too loud. Well, no, this, uh, what she laughs at is he looks at her and says. If, if you were there, we wouldn't have yeah. even had to wait for the novices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. forgot that. Yeah. And she laughs up for way too long <laughs> to the point where everyone stands up and leaves the tape. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, Unk sees this and he resolves himself to help a uh, nephew uh, win the really hot woman yeah. over his own daughter. <laughs> and he's just like, there's a little aside to himself where he's like, is this bad? And he's like, no, fuck nah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's better for everyone. And then also, like, in the backdrop of this, into their visit to this, like, you know, small Sicilian town that, like, their family has been, like, owned property and, like, been, the, you know, the landed gentry of for probably centuries. Uh, it's the first plebiscite. There's the first election happening. Yeah. And I love the portrayal of democracy in this movie. Yeah. Because, like, as the, like, most important man, uh, Burt Lancaster, it's very important that he... Pick, play, take part in this election because his absence would be very conspicuous. But the, the election is so funny because it's like you go to the polling place and it's like everyone in town watches you as you put yes or no very obviously into a fucking box. Yeah. There is no there is no anonymity or privacy whatsoever. And my favorite part is the guy who goes after Burt Lan Lancaster walks in and the guy's holding up one card that says C, one card that says no. And Burt Lancaster grabs the C and like puts it in. And then the guy behind Burt Lancaster comes up and the guy just hands him one card that says C. Yeah, doesn't yeah. even give him the one that says no. And that scene like the, the priest is with him and there's some question about like, is the priest going to vote? And Burt Lancaster sort of saves him by being like, oh, he's not registered in this precinct or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Because he knows that like, you know, he can't put the priest in a position of having to vote yes for this yeah. or vote no, because like this is not really like a... <laughs> like a free ballot. Yeah. And then like it's when they announced 512 votes for yes, zero for no. And when they announced the results, it's like nobody, everybody voted for unification. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone wants to be part of a new modern Italian state. And there's a really funny scene where like the, the, the father of Claudia Cardinal, who's like the, you know, the local grandee, like announces the results from a balcony and the band keeps starting to play music before he's done talking. Yeah. But there's, uh, do you remember the really great shot? Of they set off fireworks yes, after and, it's, and it's a Bert is is right right in front of the fireworks and he yeah just, they look at each other and there's the shots of like fireworks going off behind Bert Lancaster and it's just this, like one of many many like really profound and beautiful moments in this movie. I was like when I saw that moment I was like I kind of want to make like one of those uh, Barry Lyndon a lot style yeah. fan cams <laughs> with like Bert Lancaster Elaine Delon in this movie. <laughs> uh, how many religious rituals do you attend? A lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, uh, so, so the town's voted for unification, and uh, basically, uh, he goes hunting with his friend, who's another aristocrat, and his friend is very upset about all this, and he like mm -hmm. asks him like, "How'd you vote?" And he's like, "What do you, what do you think?" Like, no. <laughs> he's like, "I voted yes because I had to, but look at my heart, no." And he has this whole spiel where he's like, "I don't really care about politics, but like." 
all I know about is loyalty. And it's just basically like Queen Isabel like made my raised my family up, and like that's why I can like play an organ now, and that's my job. And yeah. he's like, that's all I care about. <laughs> but he, you know, and then he tells him about you know. Claudia Cardinale, Angelica, and like her dad and family is that like her lore? <laughs> yeah, like they're on the make, and like he stands to be the biggest landowner, it, like in the area when the church has their property divvied up. But like his wife is the simple spawn of like peasant cow shit and and killers, yeah. basically. <laughs> so like yeah, like the the prince like is just sort of investigating a little bit further about Miss Angelica and like resolves himself. Everyone upset him around him is upset about this pairing. Like his wife is just like, you know, his wife is despondent. Yeah. It's like, and then he's just like, he lays down the law. We're going to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. He lays down the law to her. (laughs) Um, it's so like, but he resolves himself to give his blessing to this marriage of the, the old and new. And there's a very funny line where he tells, um, uh, Angelica, Claudia Cardinale's father. He says, he's like, let's be real for a second. He's like, look, my nephew, he is, you know, handsome, charming, and has all the refinement of, like, you know, his family. But, like, to be honest, like, it's only the product. Like, you cannot get as handsome and charming as Tancredi without a family that has squandered a fortune over centuries. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what produces <laughs> handsome, dashing men of, like, the height of European sophistication and, and coolness. Yeah. You need, a, you need a family with lots of land, but cash poor. Good, good times create yeah. <laughs> ugly men. <laughs> cash poor times create handsome, dashing, yeah. cool men. And, and then he's just like, he's like, look, you like you have all the money like and like that's what he needs to make like because you know like he spends money like a sieve like you know yeah. but, but he needs he the needs name. capital to fuel his yeah his rise to power yeah. and like we have the name and you have the money and like and you know this is a this is a an oft repeated pattern throughout history and like the development of modernity is like yeah. how the uh, how the nobility like makes their peace with a like, middle class who all of a sudden is like doesn't have the name but they have all the cash mm-hmm and so, I also love before that when he's um, talking to the other noble who's like, of course I didn't want this to happen. He's like, the other guy gets into Claudia Cardinale's lore by being like, he's like, what do you think of this family? Uh, after he tells him all that stuff, he's like, well, I asked you that because, um, you know, Tancredi, I'm going to ask for her hand in marriage for Tancredi. And uh, just so you can't ruin it, I'm going to have to lock you in the oh, gun he locks him, yeah, he, yeah, He locks him up with the dogs. I'm going to have to lock you in the gun shed with the dogs until <laughs> I'm done. Sorry. <laughs> the guy's pissed. <laughs> uh, once again, like, to return to Burt Lancaster's performance in this movie, which is so stunning, but, like, it's not his voice. Yeah. It's all, it's all dubbed, but, like, it's just... Uh, the fact that it's it's like it's not his voice like it, the performance is is authentically his in the way he like his facial expressions and the way he carries his body but like i mean it, it like in terms of like the thesis of like why Burt Lancaster is one of the greatest if not the greatest like leading man of his generation i think this movie is like an object example because in sweet smell of success we obviously get like the full force of it yeah but in this it's just like the, that it's veiled behind it's like kept it a degree of remove because it's an Italian actor who's like speaking the part, but the way he embodies this prince and his sort of his, the bittersweetness, his humanity, but all the kind of like his, this mournful sense of, of, of losing the, the man he once was or a world that made sense to him. Yeah. And the way he carries his body, like I said, uh, it's before. so his physicality, like in sweet smell of success, he's like, it's like, um, 
a Terminator was sent to in, infiltrate like a business, like a, a high rise business like tower. Skynet sent a cybernetic organism back in time to become the most powerful gossip columnist in he, America. He looks like one of the people in like Lenny Riefenstahl's Olympia, like, yeah. but with a business suit and glasses like hastily put on to like disguise him. And then in this, he's like, a soft, very gentle, yeah. cat-like. Yeah. Um, his whiskers, he has his sort of yeah. sideburns and mustache. His a- hair is like points up. I really think they styled him to look cat-like with like his Wolverine style. Yeah, his, his Wolverine. Yeah. yeah. Wolverine mutton chops. Yeah. Like I said, this was an Italian-American co-production and Visconti wanted for the prince, he wanted either Lawrence Olivier or Spencer Tracy. And the studio foisted Lancaster on him, and he was very unhappy about that. But in filming this movie, they became great friends, and like he, he was, he loved Burt Lancaster. I mean, like he won him over. And Lancaster said Visconti was the finest director he ever worked with, That's and that so this cool. was the, his favorite movie of his entire career. That's so sick. So back to the movie, like uh, the, the marriage has been set up. Ne- nephew comes home with his friend. Uh, but like they they come home in uniform, but they've switched sides. Yeah, they, they're, so they're, funny. Yeah. And like like and, and the scene goes on for a while as they're reintroduced to this like the family setting, and then uh, Lancaster is the one who's just like, wait a second, uh, didn't you have red uniforms the last time you were around here? And they were like, oh yeah, like we 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 left the the the, ra- the rabble that we we couldn't stand to be with that rabble much longer. Now we're in a proper army again. Yeah, it's also um the debut of Delon's mustache, yes. which is oof. Oof, I there's like a look he gives that's like almost Tom Cruise like when he's like, what happened to your uniforms? And he's like, Garibaldi. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> You're being glib. <laughs> yeah, he's like, Garibaldi is being glib. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, like uh, there, there's sort of a little bit of a jump ahead in time. But we see now like uh, uh, Tancredi and Angelica are engaged. And like, you know, like there, there's a real romance there. Like, I don't want to like Tancredi is not like an evil character. No, no. Like he, he's, he's even going to wait for their wedding. night. Yeah, he's very charming. He's very like the the problem is that like he's too charming. It's like there's got to be something else going on. And you know how like shifty his like morals are. But in like the same way, like Claudia Cardinale is like too beautiful. And like it's almost like scary what they could do like the concept of this like beautiful powerful couple with like so much ambition and like Claudia Cardinale being like you know I just love parties like this I love socializing it's all I'm all about and like yeah that's like the real darkness in it is like if this was transposed to now would they be yeah and like the really important part of the movie before the grand finale which is like the last hour of the movie is like this ball um a representative of the newly formed government uh, uh, pays a visit to the prince and his family uh, with making the offer of like the newly formed Senate that they want men of distinction to serve in the Senate of this new government. And they're like, you know, you were the most prominent man. Like, you know, the, you're the obvious choice. And the prince's um, declining of that offer and the reasons he gives for it is like really like grounds what's going to be like the real emotional power of this movie where he basically says like, I was happy to like, you know, vote for unification and like I've had like, you know, outwardly like a liberal attitude towards this. But like I have no place in this government. Like what does a senator do? And like, you know, I I don't have a mind for politics because I don't have a capacity for Mm self-deception. And like I can't lie to myself about who I am and what I represent. 
and like my bonds to the old order like can't be changed. And this is where like the title of the movie comes from as he says goodbye to this guy. And he's like very nice to him. He regards him as a man of honor. He doesn't think that the new government is evil, but like, but even though he like supported it and like resolved himself to this new world, he knows that there's no place for him in it and he can't officially take part in it. Yeah. And what he says to the, what he says to him as he sees him off is he says that like he, he explains to him about the Sicilian people and about the great line about like our 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 vanity is greater than our misery. Mm-hmm. So like you know if you want to talk about like the the state of squalor and ignorance that we persist in like we don't want to hear about it because we know yeah. that we're better than everyone. We like things exactly the way they are. Yeah, and because says, like, we're such a we have our ancient traditions, we don't want anything new, even if it would be better. And what he says to him is that we used to be the lions and leopards. But what will, who will replace us will be hyenas and jackals. And the most profound line in the movie to me is when he says that to men always only means a couple hundred years at most. Yeah. Because like that, that's like in another couple hundred years, like always will mean something completely different. Mm-hmm. And it does. <laughs> yeah. And like the, what, you know, like Visconti's own history and the context in which this movie was made in, like, in the time that the movie takes place as like Italian national democracy is being formed less than a hundred years later, it would collapse into like the carcass of fascism and like the destruction of Italy and like the Axis powers. Yeah. And like that, that line is like with that, the, this world of privilege and aristocracy that is going to be replaced by this burgeoning middle class and kind of like democratic bourgeois freedoms, the people who replace us will be hyenas and jackals. Yeah. And like, it's hard to say he was wrong about that. But at the same time, I think you're right that this is not a movie that has like a, I don't know, trad morality about like, oh, like no. about democracy and kind of like a, a modern freedom and that like, oh, it really was better in the ancient regime of like, you know, where everyone, there was a peasantry and like a, the church and the nobility and everyone kind of like knew their place. And that was just this unbroken chain for like a thousand years. And that like everything that replaced it is just a, the corruption of the masses or something like that. No, I think the movie is making actually like a much more interesting and profound point. About, about class and history. And like I, like, I don't think this movie is a defense of nobility or the aristocracy. No. But it is a very, like, but in their, the position of the prince, I think there's something very human communicated, uh, like, like what Scorsese was saying about like, to place yourself in eternity and like what that really means, or like his, his comment about what always is only a couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. And that like things will always change and that like we just, the forces of history just act upon us. Yeah. We really have no choice. And like, it just, this is how we find ourselves. I, one of my notes says, um, it's kind of like Sicilian dark souls in a lot of ways. (laughs) (laughs) The world has ended and started so many other times. Yeah. And, um, I also, I also want to bring up, um, the sun. We really get introduced in earnest to the, the prince's son for the first time played by the great Pierre Clementi, who plays, um, you may know as the pedophile in The Conformist. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Pasqualino. Um, and also the um, the gangster slash John in um, Belle du Jour. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. yeah. Another like sexy, handsome guy um, whose film career was um, cut kind of short by... Um, he went to jail for like several years for like having drugs on him or something. And he did have kind of a comeback role. I'm trying to, for, I'm kind of forgetting what it was, but 
Well, we're introduced to his character as he like shepherds the representative of the new government into town and then just does nothing but wind him up telling stories about yeah. banditry and murder and the Sicilian <laughs> yeah. countryside about people of like, uh, you know, a grand Sicilian tradition of kidnapping people and sending their part body parts back one at a time. Well, it's so funny because like when pandemic started, it like hit Sicily first. So I was like Skyping with my like cousin, like, how is it over there? You know, and like I can't really understand Italian. So like my dad had to like translate and was like, it gets very, a lot of yelling happens. And like <laughs> my, my dad is like, he says that bandits have taken the town. <laughs> and I was like, is that true? And he was like, he's being dramatic. He's being ridiculous. My dad like getting like actually mad. Kind of. It's very funny. Um <laughs> Well, you know, yeah, uh, a banditry, it was a problem in Sicily in the 1860s. It's still a problem now. It's just like yeah. highway agents just robbing and killing people. It's just like watching, they're just watching Italian nymph, like info wars. <laughs> being like, bands taking the time. Um, so like uh, after that very poignant, you know, uh, always for people is only a century or two. is the line that really just just grounds this movie for me and really just like, yeah. turns the key into like my heart of like what this movie is really about. Then we get into the, the finale, which is an hour long sequence of just a grand ball. Yeah. Of like, once again, this very old, it's like, it's like how the, these balls, these social events are like how the aristocracy like sort of reproduces itself and like establishes their hierarchies. And it's just like this very important part of like I said before, the rhythms of this like ancient way of life. Yeah, and you know it's like it's it's the kind of announcement and coming out for Tancredi and Angelica because like they're the most beautiful people there. Like they're the youth. They're this like like I think at one point like the prince says like there's like there's nothing more beautiful than this couple. Yeah, and what they represent. Meanwhile, the prince like Tancredi and um, Angelica are in their element, and you know. Meanwhile, the prince is walking through this um, ball, the like seemingly infinite vaulting, like huge rooms of this ball. He's walking through a nightmare or like he's walking through like a dream sequence almost where this like a never ending palace has all these rooms with all this stuff going on in them. And he's just like now completely becoming more and more disillusioned. He's like untethered from this like huge clockwork mechanism and I think about like the people and they're like the incredibly lavish dress that they have and like these decadent opulent interiors but like the waltzes and dances that they do it's like this clockwork mechanism of like social order of like you know, people fitting into their parts and moving precisely in this kind of like public demonstration of its efficiency and utility but the prince is the one who's like he's been cut he's like un, been the tether has been cut for him yeah and he's walking around this and like he like he doesn't like the gears don't fit in anymore and he doesn't know who he is or like he and he sees like that the the grubby nouveau reach and middle classes have now like infiltrated the, 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 the this this clockwork mechanism yeah and that like the, the gears are not turning in the way he used to remember and there's a scene where like he removes himself from the party and like sort of contemplates death looking at this painting. There's an insanely morbid painting yeah. on like this wall in this like drawing room. And this is probably my favorite scene in the entire movie. The scene where Claudia Cardinale and like Elaine Delon 
join him in this drawing room as he's was just in the middle of like one of the maybe the most horrifying moment of the whole movie because it's like a thousand times worse than the battle sequence or anything else that's come before um but it's just him like looking at a painting and it's like so and he's just like clearly like horrified as this like party goes on and they enter this like beautiful young couple and Elaine Delon is acting almost like something's wrong like he's sweating noticeably way more than in any other scene in this movie and this ball is like very pointedly shown to be like very hot like the women are always fanning themselves vigorously fanning themselves there's a scene where he like a, a scene that like really like uh fixes his horror to himself as he sees this like huge gathering of hens of these women fanning themselves and laughing and cavorting and he makes a comment about how all the cousin marriages and their bloodline have made it a bit shallow and he he calls them monkeys at one point yeah it's like crazy like and um claudia cardinale is like sits down with um, the prince in probably the most sensual scene in this entire movie is like shot like very close up and just asks him to dance with her. Mm -hmm. And she says to him probably like the last gasp of his youth is like, she's like, he didn't want me to ask you. And Elaine Delon, it cuts back to him and he's pouring sweat. He's like, well, I guess, you know, with such a handsome uncle, I'm, you know, maybe just this once. And like, he's like, I can't. And she like forces him to dance with her. He says like, he says he can't, like he, he declines initially because he's like, the feelings of youth are, are, are too, like to rekindle those feelings of youth in me would be too painful. Yeah. But he does dance with her and it it's is just, oh my God. It's heart wrenching. It's, it's, it's like, it's, yeah, like they, they do this waltz. And again, like Burt Lancaster as a dancer, as like a physical performance where it's just like, this moment where like everything stops and he's waltzing with this beautiful young woman. And like for like one moment, like one perfect moment, one last moment, he is fully again, this dashing romantic figure yeah. of, of nobility and tradition and like a, a, a power. Yeah. And then it ends. And at that, like the second it ends, it, the entire air changes in like this place and it the ball really becomes like the party that everyone knows is over but no one has left yet yeah and it's like the sun is almost i couldn't tell if the sun was out it really looked like the sun was out but at one point they're like um oh at this this late at night you're gonna walk home but and also like uh like everyone's sort of milling around, like the dancing is sort of stopped. There's a scene where like, there's a great scene where like they have sort of a conga line of people just sort of like move around him and he's just sitting there alone. Yeah. And there's this line of like, you know, merry makers just sort of like hand in hand moving around him. Again, repeated in the conformist to grand effect. Um, Um, But yeah, and also the father-in-law character who's like, you know, has to attend this too. And he's kind of an embarrassment to everyone because pointedly at many times, like the only comments he makes about everything is how much anything costs. Yeah. Like, like he takes in this grand world of this, this palace and the chandeliers and the, the food and the opulence of the candelabras. And he's just like tallying up in the middle-class brain. He's just tallying up like the, just checking off how much everything costs. Yeah. And like, that's the only thing that impresses him. It's not the tradition or what it represents. It's how expensive everything is. Yeah. And then there's um, this other like middle class kind of figure 
um, is this Italian army officer, this colonel that um, Burt Lancaster talks to at one point. And is like disgusted by Yeah, who um, was basically fought with Garibaldi and kept talking about like, you know, I knelt at his knees and I said, you're such a great general. And then he's like, yeah, but we just executed all of his guys today. And you know what had to be done? I mean, you got, you got to have law and order. And um, but he was like, he was like, you know, usually like I had my orders. What was I can, what was I to do? But like, this is one of the few occasions in which my heart and the orders I received were entirely on the same page. Yeah. As he just shoots a crowd full of people. Yeah. It's, and Burt Lancaster is like, you have like no convictions. You have no morals. You have no like, you know, and then we get the scene where Elaine Delon is like, uh, I just talked to that colonel guy. He He's right. And Conchetta is like, you would never have said that. And he says, I think I have the exact, you wouldn't have spoken like that once. You're wrong, my dear. I've always spoken like that. And it's like yeah. that wording is like, there's something so like, it's like he's right. He always just says whatever, whatever environment he says what he has to say to like yeah. advance himself. And then like uh, the prince, he wants to walk home alone, but not before we get a single scene of him looking in a mirror and the single diamond-like tear moving down his face. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's breathtaking. And it ends in like, he, he walks home alone and the last scene of the movie is like, he's like in, like not in a palace, not in a grand hall. He's in some shitty alleyway. He disappears into and this. And like, like he just disappears like down an alley, like anonymous, alone, and in like poverty and like dirt and squalor. But he just like... It, he disappears down this shadowy alley and it's just like, you know, like Goodfellas, like a schnook. You mm -hmm. know, I'm just like, just a schnook. And he just like disappears. It's like anonymous. It's like, and back to this idea of like, what that last hour of the movie, like it really makes you feel everything about the prince's character. And really what it makes you feel is death. It mm -hmm. makes you feel like the, the, this profound sense of just like, not as he says, I'm not afraid of death. It's just something I think about. Yeah. And it's, also, the, the one other, the other thing that happens in that last shot is as he's walking down the alley, a white, orange, and black cat like yes. steps out and starts like following him a little bit, and it's like the leopard has been kind of domesticated. Yeah, domesticated, reduced to it's like an alley cat. Yeah, oh. Tony with the voice of Tony Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there you go. Uh, that's uh, Visconti's The Leopard and Alexander McKendrick's The Sweet, Sm Sweet Smell of Success, uh, both starring Burt Lancaster. We'll be talking about uh, Tony Curtis, I think, uh, next week, um, and then Elaine Delon uh, the week following that. But just before we go, Hesse, uh, let's, give, let's give the people some further viewings for Burt Lancaster, because there are so many to talk about. There are so many. I made a list, actually, because there's too many. Um, we've got From Here to Eternity and The Swimmer are the two other like classics in I would say like the seeing four. his hot bod yeah yeah um and the crisscross which is an amazing and like little scene noir movie that um I caught on TCM one night that was like so sick um Vera Cruz Robert Aldrich um amazing color western um my favorite movie that he's in probably um, is The Skin, Liliana Cavani's The Skin, which you have to watch The Skin. If you never watch um, any other movie that I like, tell you to watch on this podcast, you got to watch The Skin. It's the craziest movie 
you will be like, how have I never heard of this? Because it's like so underrated and insane. Yeah, I mean, like uh, actually like with the leopard was like a stage in his career and when she started working with like European auteurs, like Mm -hmm. Louis Malle in uh, Atlantic City and then Visconti in this. And it's like very interesting choices later in his career. I will go. Um, his collaborations with John Frankenheimer are, are all yes. The fucking, train, like the train, is probably the best movie about a train. Yeah, <laughs> um, he plays you know uh, French resistance to the Nazis. It's like the Nazis have a plan to steal all of France's art <laughs> and put it out, loaded on a train. And he's like, remember the he's a French railroad worker who's like a part of the resistance who stops the Nazis from mm-hmm. stealing all of France's uh, cultural uh, treasures. Also, Seven Days in May. I haven't that I still haven't seen that. Okay, one. he plays the bad guy in that movie. It's another, oh. another great villain performance. He plays a like a, uh, a mad general, Mad Dog Mattoon. He plays like a <laughs> like a right wing general. And this is the movie that uh, John F. Kennedy read the book it was based on and gave the book to John Frankenheimer. Like, I think you really need to make this movie for Whoa. for reasons. <laughs> The movie was released two months after Kennedy was killed. Holy shit. Yeah. And this That's movie, a great title, this movie, too. It's, it's, it's Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas and Ava Gardner. It was about a, like a, a, a very realistic and chilling uh, procedural about like an attempted military coup on the president of the United States. Lancaster, in a lot of ways, is like cool Kirk Douglas. Like, because they he's had like the he's same... calm Kirk Douglas. Yeah, because like Kirk Douglas had the same trajectory kind of. of they were in many movies movie together. Movie star, yeah, movie star turned producer, and because Lancaster was like had that with Hecht and like had the production yeah. company um, that was less successful than Douglas's. Because he's less of a JJ, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, Kirk Douglas also another true life evil person. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but they did work together a lot, and they worked well together. I think. Um, well, like Kirk Douglas, like his delivery of every line is like he's like punching someone. Yeah. Whereas like Burt <laughs> yeah. Lancaster, like it's just you know, it's, smooth. it's effortless. Yeah, it's effortless. It flows like, together. He's from the streets. Kirk Douglas, you can't fake being from the streets. Yeah, Harlem. You know, yeah. you can't. Um, Nineteen hundred, another one. Um, I walk alone. Um, uh, the other Frankenheimer is the Birdman of Alcatraz, a very good movie. But the last, the last, my last Lancaster wreck is a little scene movie. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a local hero. It's him, and it's like it's late later in career. So he's much older. Yeah, no, local hero directed by the British director Bill Forsyth, or Scottish, I should say. Um, it's, it's, it's Burt Lancaster and Peter Riegert and it's like Burt Lancaster's supporting role. He's like a, a Houston uh, oil magnate who sends Peter Riegert to this like tiny village in Scotland to buy the village so that they can build like an, like a, like an oil depot off it. A very like humanistic, like bittersweet, like very funny, just nice, just a movie that like, just fills me with warmth every time I think about it. It's a movie my dad introduced me to. I guess like Peter Rieger kind of looks like my dad. So it's a movie that I always think about my father whenever I watch it. But I cannot recommend enough Local Hero with Peter Rieger and uh, Bruce, Bruce uh, Burt Lancaster. It's a just a, a charming, just like, uh, I, I, I can't say enough about Local Hero. It's, it, it's a beautiful movie. It's also got young, really young Peter Capaldi in it, if you're a fan oh. of him. Yeah. But it's, a, it's like a Houston yuppie is sort of fish out of water in this like small town in Scotland. It's, it's a really funny, charming movie. Um, all right. Leave it there. Yeah. How long do we go on this one? Fucking hey, longest one yet. Yo. Keep it going. <laughs> all right. Burt Lancaster, ladies and gentlemen. That was Movie Mindset. <laughs> Bye.